It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. It's Saturday, December the 20th, 2014, five days till Christmas. That means it's the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, of course. Check us out live and on replay, weekendwatchdogs.com. Check me out on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media, Joe, at jbono611. And if you want to send me a personal note, mikesilvamedia.com. And joining me in a very festive mood, I'm sure, because that's what Joe Bono is all about during Christmas. Uh, Joe Bono from his book. <laughs> How are you, my friend? I'm festive because the day I've had circled... I actually have a few in the uh, in the apartment here, but the day I've had circled on my calendar now has not been December 25th. It's been December 20th, a day where yeah. I get to bring Mike Silva into the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum to watch the best story in New York sports unfold beyond unfold in front of his eyes later on tonight. Islanders Lightning. This is the day I've been looking forward to. You know, when you grow up, you have those kind of advent calendars and those things where you count down the days, the kids rush down the right. stairs and they move the calendar every day closer to Christmas. That's what I've been right. doing to December 20th. Mike Silva and That's I funny at you the said Nassau that. Coliseum for Islander Hockey. It's funny you said that because I was watching the Griswolds that Christmas, that old late 80s Christmas with the Griswolds and they have the little advent calendar in the film. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You've seen that, that yeah, movie, Christmas, right? Yeah, Yeah, Christmas Vacation. Yeah. And I thought of the same thing. I said, Joe's probably doing his advent calendar. And, you know, one, one, one day he opens up, it's John Tavares. The next day it's, uh, it's uh, Halak. And, and then we go on and so on and so forth. And not only am I going to the Coliseum tonight, um, I'm wearing this Yes, Yes, Yes shirt that I, I got. And I'm suspecting I would have had it last week. I didn't check my mailbox uh, until late Saturday night. So I don't know if I got it Friday or Saturday. I could have had it a week earlier. I don't know. I, I just not into checking the mail every day. Um, so I have it, and I'm wearing it, and uh, I've, I've washed it. It didn't shrink, so the large, as you told me, large will be fine. And I will be wearing it all day as I uh, you know, make my trek, uh, I guess, 30 minutes west. <laughs> the, the closest you'll get me to the New York bo- the, the city border on a weekend is the Nassau Coliseum. So that's about, all, that's, that's about as close as I get to any 718 area code on a weekend. Listen, and the out. thing is, you know, like um, – I know you've been to hockey games before. I know you've been mm-hmm. to the Coliseum before, but it's almost like if you're in a new relationship with a girl and you know, you're a major sports fan and you want her to be really into what you're into. I feel like that's how I'm right. going to be with you at the Coliseum today. That like when something happens, I'm going to be looking over and being like, Oh, did he, did he get, did he get excited <laughs> there? You know, was he pumped up? Is he, is he starting to get chills? Are the hairs on his arm starting to raise when, know, they, when they start happen. chanting, let's go Islanders. And they, they start doing the yes chant after goals. So it's I'm like, I'm kind of on like a first, I feel like I'm on a first date with you a little bit today. You know, hopefully know. you have a good time. That I show you a good time tonight. Well, I'm sure we'll have a good time. I mean, I think the last time, I know it was like around 2007 or 2008, maybe 2009, somewhere in that vicinity where I went to see a Penguins-Islanders game. And what I mo- remember most about that game, you probably will know this promotion. I think if the Islanders scored more than three goals, you get like a free chili from Wendy's or something. I don't know if you were aware of that. <laughs> I know for a fact, because people are into the whole chili thing. I know Pittsburgh won the game. I'm almost positive. But um, 
it was like I think people got free chili. Now I didn't redeem my ticket to go get chili because the last thing I need is chili from Wendy's or whatever it was at that point. But uh, that was the last time I was at the college team. I have seen, like I said, in other weeks, uh, arena football many years ago at the Coliseum. What was that? The New York Dragons, I think they used to be, that used to play there. Do you remember? Yeah, the New York Dragons. Yep, absolutely. I did a few play-by-play you know, games for the New York Dragons in uh, 2006, actually. Travel with the That team. might have been around the time. Yeah. It was either 2005 or 2006. I think it was 2005, because I remember I went like uh, the, the afternoon after a Subway Series game. Uh, or the evening after Subway Series game. I remember that for some reason. So I am pumped to go to the Coliseum. I may actually make another trip before the end of the year. It sounds, based on going on Isles blog, there's very uh, limited availability of Islanders Rangers tickets. I would like to experience that at the Coliseum one last time before it closes. Because uh, well, I wonder well, how I will it's going to be about that. What I will say about that, though, Mike, if you thought $27 was too much to spend on a T-shirt, you might be a little priced out of Islander Rangers at this point. Oh, and not only there's a way, price. unless there's a way to get in. And here's the thing, you know, I understand. By the way, it is a $27 shirt, and it's really not breaking my bank. But I understand you giving Alan Hahn a shirt and Evan Roberts and and Humpty over there, uh, Rick DiPietro, which I thought every Islanders fan hated Rick DiPietro. So I'm surprised that you gave him one. You didn't you, know, you didn't send him, uh, you know, like poor Doug Sist. They used to send him uh, fake bottles of cyanide. He used to tell, you know, Doug told me one time. He used to say take two and perish in the morning because they hated him so much. You know, how cruel New York fans could be. Um, I understand that, but to give one to Brian Monzo of WFAN, Francesca's uh, producer, who's been on the show, great guy, you know, has issues with me, but that's besides the point. Um, for free, while well, I have to pay, and you call it promotion, I think I'm more promotion than Monzo. Monzo's using it as a, as a, as a rag for his, his car. I mean, look at that. Come on. That, uh... He, when, when, the, when the shirt was delivered on air to Evan Roberts, he said, I would use that for a rag. And uh, I wanted to see if he actually would, so he and did. He did. And he put a picture yeah, of it. Yeah, he did. A couple it pictures. It is creative. One is a duster. I'll give you credit. And you've, you've done well with it, from what I understand. So, uh, look, in all seriousness, to get anybody to buy anything in the world of the Internet, pay for content, pay for a shirt, not easy. Um, you know, it sounds like you made a few bucks on this. Obviously, not. Retiring. We haven't even, and we haven't even hit our kind of our, our peak point because after we take the shirt with you, with the Coliseum ice and the retired banners in the background and the Stanley Cup banners oh, my, in the I'm background, and we put, tonight, and we put oh, that, no. and we put that on the internet. We go on Instagram. Oh, we get a nice filter right. on it. Make sure you look good. We post that up, then, then the shirt sales are really going to skyrocket. Well, and then, so. Yeah, and then again, the shirt sales will go off, and, you know, I get ungats out of that, you know? Again, like I told you, there's no fuzz. <laughs> to, to quote, to quote uh, uh, the Donnie Brosco, there's no fuzzles with this, you know? Forget about it type of thing. So, oh, boy. Well, anyway, we, but, but, I think we but, have... Wait, wait, before we start, I though, although you have to pay for this shirt, I am also giving you your gift later on today, so you should be excited right. about that, which you do not have to pay for, and right. so at least a little well, yeah, generosity I, 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 I on my part you. there. I'll get you a pretzel. I told you I'd get you a pretzel. I'll get you a pretzel. I understood. You, understood. But, will, but will the Mets give us a shortstop? That's the question. No. I can, the Mets aren't going to give you anything for Christmas. They're going to ask you for something for Christmas, like to purchase season tickets before uh, they do anything. Uh, we have a, a couple of really, I think, good guests new to the show. Steve Gelbs uh, of SNY, he will be taking over in studio as well as on the sideline for Kevin Burkhardt this upcoming season. You probably saw him sub in, uh, especially late in the year when uh, Kevin was doing his uh, Fox responsibilities for the NFL. He'll be joining us uh, uh, l- later this hour. We'll talk Mets baseball, the wild Troy Tulowitzki rumors that in, in, an, in a town where 
we all know what's going on with everybody but the Islanders. Not not much going on right now. Positive. Uh, this this any kind of rumor, especially when it comes to the Mets and, and them not acquiring someone or not spending money, is going to fill your Twitter line and spend your uh, your talk radio time on any given day. So Steve Gelbs will talk about that. We'll get some idea based on the fact that he was out in San Diego at the winter meetings last week. Uh, what he thinks about the team and what they've done so far, and what to expect as we head into the back half of the uh, hot stove here in uh, January post-New Year. Later on, a feature-driven segment in the uh, 11 o'clock hour, John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated. Uh, he co-authored the new Al Michaels book, You Can't Make It Up. So I figured we'd get a, a few thoughts from him about this book, and you know, maybe Joe and I could chat a little bit. I have not read the book. I've read about the book. Um, so you know, I, I can't say I've read every story, but I do find Al, Al Michaels in his career path not only extraordinary, because Joe, for someone who... Who has done play by play? See, I've never done. Well, I've done play by play for Stratomatic. I've never done it in real in the real world. It by far to me, this is easy. See, people think talk radio is hard, and it can be. Um, but to me, this is easy because this is freelance. You really, there's no rules for for the most part. Play by play, I think is the hard. I don't know if you agree. I think it's the hardest thing anybody can do in um, in media, in sports media. That's my opinion. Well, there's certain sports that are definitely harder than others, and Al has shown his versatility, um, being able to do pretty much all the major sports, including golf and tennis at certain points, and all the well, stuff you he did at Wide World right? Sports. You did the Cyclones. I didn't do play-by-play play play for right? the Cyclones. I did minor league baseball. I've done basketball. I've done arena football. I've done college football. Um, you know, But that was radio play-by-play. Play. I think the difficulties with television play-by-play play is you don't want to – speak too much, actually. It's almost less is more, and being able to set up your analyst the right way, leading to graphics, and have a real feel for the big moments as to when you should be reaching your ceiling and the pinnacle of your excitement in your voice. And uh, there's certainly, when there are certain announcers that we've grown up with, that when your team is playing and they're calling the game, it feels like a big game. The game feels more important because they're there, whether that was Dick Enberg or John Madden and Pat Summerall, but when Al Michaels is doing a game, it feels like a bigger event than, you know, if you're turning on, and listen, I love Iron Eagle, but if Iron Eagle's doing the game around Michaels, it just perception-wise does not feel as if you got the big game that week. Um, so Al Michaels has done a tremendous job, age 70, still going strong with Sunday Night Football with him and Chris Collinsworth, and uh, fun little interview we have later on with John Wertheim and some other stories I have about Al Michaels and things I can add uh, after that interview. So looking forward to that. Uh, I, I definitely, in the, what a lot of younger fans may not realize, and you may remember, but you're a little younger than me. I mean, Al Michaels did baseball game of the week and the, the uh, championship series, or the World Series back in the 80s. So I believe in 1988, uh, when the Mets played the Dodgers in the championship series, I believe, because I, I know Scully did the World Series, maybe on radio. I'm trying to remember now. I believe it was Al Michaels that did that series, if I'm not mistaken, because he did the AL championship series. In 86, Scully did the World Series in 86. So I'm guessing Scully did the World Series in 88. They used to flip-flop the uh, ABC, NBC at that time. And uh, like you said, if Al Michaels is doing it, it's a big game, you know? So absolutely. Uh, but from play-by-play, play, and I know we'll talk more about it later, cause, but I am fascinated by this because I don't get a chance to, to, you know, talk to you about the fundamentals of the business. So what's the hardest play-by-play play? you've done? I think baseball is rather easy because it's, casual in terms of the pace well actually baseball in a lot of ways is the most difficult because in actual three hours of broadcasting you might actually only have five to six minutes of actual play-by-play 
Um, so from that standpoint, it has to be kind of a rhythm and a sing song to how the broadcast goes to be very conversational, um, which means the banter between your partner needs to be strong. You know, you have some booths where it's an actual analyst and just a play-by-play of others where it's just two play-by-play guys. But to be able to be filling in everyone and painting the word picture of things that are happening when there's really nothing happening is a real challenge. Another thing about baseball that's difficult is that often you can see a play that you've never actually seen before. You know, a ball bounces a certain way that it doesn't normally bounce. You can't just, like in basketball, you can, you know, left wing from the three is a left wing from the three. You know, a three from the left wing, excuse me. While in baseball, a twisting liner, you know, cooking into the right corner, one hopping the wall, you know, things things change and things are very different and can be very spontaneous in a baseball play-by-play. So to be prepared to call it, um, definitely a challenge is there. And hockey is very, very difficult just because of the changing of, of the players. People are changing on the fly. Yeah, I don't think I could so do you hockey. have to. You need to be yeah. consistently aware of who's on the ice at all times. Uh, where at, yeah. at the other, in the other sports, there's times where there's substitutions, and, and you know who's on the field or on the court. And that's why so. nobody respects talk radio because, like, if you're a real hardcore television a member of the media play-by-play, play, this is this is this is a day off in media. Don't you agree? I mean, I think television because of the scripted nature, the tight, very tight time frame, and then play-by-play. Play, um, to me, this is. You know, this is like a day off for somebody like Al Michaels if he sat here and did a uh, talk show. And he could probably do this like with, you know, three minutes of preparation. I mean, the part that, and I'm sure you know this, the part that really is the hardest part, I believe, is the prep for going into, I mean, I see Kevin Burkhart, I follow him on Twitter. I mean, he's prepping all week for, uh, you know, whether he's in New Orleans or it's, I yeah, mean, I mean it's, those guys, you know, it's not easy. At, at the at the NFL level, you know, you're going to go in Thursday, Friday, you're going to have the opportunity in production meetings to meet with uh, both teams, both head coaches, ask questions, kind of get that feel. But there's a, not, a tremendous amount of preparation that goes in anyway. Um, you know, at Fordham, we used to have these workshops, and everyone from Marv Albert to Bob Costas to Michael Kay to Ian Eagle to Sam Rosen, Doc Emmerich would all come and speak to us, and they would all show us their charts and how they prepare for the game. And most guys actually do just handwritten charts of teams' rosters and then have numbers and little statistics and notes around every single player. Um, And now you don't know going into the game if an opportunity is going to reveal itself for you to actually use that little nugget that you've taken out the time to write down. And you don't want to force it into a broadcast. You want to let it come to you. So, you know, often 60 75% of the time, you know, you won't actually use – things that you've written down and only get to certain certain things because that's what is pertinent to the game at that point. Um, so there was any, a lot of preparation, chance, memorization, things like that. Any chance Keith Hernandez could come to Fordham one day and show his preparation for a I'm sure board. he's more prepared like than you that. think. I'm sure, listen, I'm sure uh, yeah, him and Ron Darling yeah. rely to a certain point on their experiences in professional baseball. But I, would, I, I bet you when he's doing other teams, uh, you know, I bet you'd be a little bit surprised in terms of what he does, preparation to have in front yeah. of him, you know, in terms of when I, the game happens. You know, we do we know, know, we know he, he does keep an immaculate scorecard, though. Yeah, and I know his commute is a couple hours from Sanko. I mean, that is a – listen, he complains about it. It is a big commute. I know where he lives, uh, and it, it is a big commute. But anyway, uh, I digress. So uh, Steve Gelb in a few minutes. We'll talk to him, SNY. John Wertheim with Joe and I will get into the whole Mount Michaels immediate thing later on in the 11 o'clock hour. Of course, we have our picks, week 16. Um, as we go into the last final uh, weeks of the NFL season. But uh, let's get uh, a few minutes here before we get to the Gelbs and the Mets and the fantasy baseball trade rumors that are floating around with really 
is fiction with the Mets. So we're, we're just filling time here, talk radio-wise. But the Yankees made a deal yesterday. And again, Joe, I don't have a problem with the deal. I think that those who are going crazy about Martin Prado and, and the really good small sample of 140 at-bats or so that he had with the Yankees, he's a slightly above league average player, component player, good guy to have on your team, plays multiple positions. But he was on pace to 30 home runs with the, with the ratings going with the Yankees. And the Yankee bump. He got a very good Yankee bump, which I'm trying to coin, you know, and I'm digressing here again. I'm trying to figure out, maybe we could think about this. Maybe we could think about this while we're watching the Islanders tonight. Could we name the Yankee bump after something, after somebody that got it? Like, you know, maybe we call it the Glen Allen Hill bump or the Jose Vizcaino bump or the Shane Spencer bump. Like, we have to think about naming this Yankee bump. I've coined it, and I want to make this something that we can now put on a T-shirt that I could sell so I could make up the $27 that and you I could and I... And for it. And you could pay for it. I don't know if we... But see, the problem is we call it the Glen Allen Hill bump. I think we have to pay Glen Allen Hill, and I don't want to do that. So yeah, I don't know. Call. I think Yankee bump is uh, enough. Um, but listen, I think bump. when you look at the deal from a Yankee fan perspective, they got to see Martin Prado every day in the second half of the season play well, know that he's a versatile player um, with the questions regarding some of the everyday players for the Yankees was going to need that versatility that he could play both the infield and the outfield positions, uh, a good solid bat. And when you look at Nate Evaldi's numbers, if you're an American League fan and you don't watch a lot of the Miami Marlins and you look at 6-14 and 14 with the near over 4 and gave up the most hits in the, in the league last year at 223 hits and 199 innings, you're going to be scratching your head and saying, is this the type of arm we're going to have in our rotation? This is the fourth and fifth guy in our rotation right now. But I think, listen, I think people at the same time wanted the Yankees to get younger. And they've done it maybe on two accounts here. Number one, they bring in a 24-year-old power right-hander that throws 97 that Terry Collins talked about having one of the best sliders in the National League last year. And now you look at what they're doing now middle of the infield. In just two years, now they've had Cano part, Jeter part, they got passed last year, and now they have Gregorius and likely Rob Refschneider playing second base for them. So the Yankee, everyone that wants the Yankees to get younger, they should be happy about this deal. Although at the same time, oh, no. remember, oh, they, they got also better. save money here. They also save money here. Bucks. And yeah. they, as much as they talk about how they're not going to go after Max Scherzer, yeah. you wonder if that played in a small part in yeah, making the deal as well. a small part. I don't, I don't think so. I think the thing they're trying to do is get and, – and I almost feel – they're telling you that they're using 2015 to, yeah, they're going to try to win. I think they're going to go all in and, and put more chips to the center of the table after they see 50, 60 games in, how good are the Red Sox? How good are the Blue Jays? How good are the Orioles going to be? I think right now they're trying to play it both ways where they're going to try to get younger and better and look at the future. They're stuck with certain players that they have to uh, play, you know, they have to play Bichero. They, you know, A-Rod will see. You know, there's some thought that maybe they're going to try to bench him and embarrass him into quitting. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're trying to see what they have. I don't think anybody, even the most optimistic Yankees fan, could say today, assuming that the roster's not going to change significantly, even if they brought in Scherzer, let's say, um, that the Yankees are for sure a favorite to win the American League. They can. I don't think they will, um, but I don't think they're a trash team either, so I think they fall in between. And then they'll look at their team 50, 60 games in and say, okay, this is what we need to go forward, and now we could compete. If not, then it goes the other way where they continue to rebuild. So that's how I see this. It's almost like they're, they don't know what they have, so let's play it 
you know, halfway, for lack of a better word. As I was making that point, and, and, and Eddie Valdi, just to let everybody know, young pitcher and still needs to learn how to pitch, so you know, that's, that's part of it. Maybe the shirt, I and I know I'm, I just hold it, you know, this shirt now has got me interested. Just, instead of having like a, I don't, again, I don't know the legalities of this. We could make the shirt where on the back, we could put all the names historically who have gotten a Yankees bump. Like off the top of my head, Vizcaino, Glenn Allen Hill, Martin Prado, Alfonso Soriano is, is, is one. You just make this list down, 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 going all the way back. I think you got to do it post trade deadline. So you got to probably you can't really go back to the 30s and 40s. Although I could probably look that up. That could be a shirt that might be bigger than this yes, yes, yes shirt that I'm wearing right now. Now I don't know if the material will be quite as good, but I think I think the the Yankee bump shirt, the Yankee bump. The only problem I have with the calling the Yankee bump is that there's a drug reference in there, and I don't know if people are gonna. I think people will see. I think that's the only problem there. That's the only thing. You know, I think the, probably the Yankees and the Yankee fans might you might not be their favorite person to begin with, Mike Silva. So, you know, they might uh, come after you with some legalities pretty quickly, Pinch even if bump? there's just some faint, faint bump? hints of copyrights. Listen, I'm sure, you know, there's so many different kinds of shirts out there. First off, you don't want to put enough, a lot of stuff on the back. That's going to be very, very pricey. Just letting you know from experience. Wow. Putting stuff on the back of the shirt becomes more and more pricey to make. But uh, I, I would imagine that you'd be a target, an easy target to kind of kind of shut down there. I don't yeah, imagine well, this. I don't imagine this happening. I don't imagine this becoming the seven line and getting uh, officially licensed <laughs> by Major League Baseball anytime soon. Wouldn't be the first. Uh, well, I've had someone shut me down already once, so we'll get to that another time. But anyway, um, let's take a quick break. Uh, we got Steve Gelbs of SNY on the line. We're going to chat about these fantasy baseball rumors. Um, when uh, yeah, after Gelbs, you know, if you want to give us a call, six four six seven one six eight one eight seven. Want to react? We'll talk about. We'll react to the, the the Mets situation, the Yankee situation. We'll talk baseball till eleven o'clock at eleven. Talk a little Knicks. Obviously, we got the Al Michaels piece. Uh, who knows if Joe lets me? Because apparently now he's holding me to this. You know, January one. Maybe we'll even talk hockey if you want to call in and make a point. So anyway, um, you're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, taking you all the way up till noon. We got Steve Gelbs of SNY right after this. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to WeekendWatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Make my wish All Mets fans want for Christmas is for them to do something. Is that something trading for Troy Tulowitzki? We discussed with our next guest, Steve Gelbs, the studio host and reporter for SNY. Earlier this month, he was in San Diego for the winter meetings, and he joins us now. Steve, Joe Bono, and Mike Silva, thanks so much for joining us. I uh, appreciate you guys having me, boys. How you doing? 
Doing well. So, Steve, let's talk about the rumors, although it might be just be anywhere between 0 and 5% uh, reports, reports about the Mets at least engaging in talks with the Colorado Rockies about Troy Tulowitzki. What do you think is the biggest thing, the biggest obstacle in this deal? Is it the Mets' unwillingness to give away multiple top prospects, or is it just plain and simple the money and health of Troy Tulowitzki? Um, I would say that there's definitely a mix of both. I don't want to simplify it and say it's it's one or the other. But um, when you look at this, and, and when I saw the report today, the first thing that came to mind is, no, there's there's no way. I just don't believe it. And the reason for that is because of the contract and the health of Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, he's got you know six years, almost $120 million left on that deal. Um, and when you look at the Mets right now, and, and in being in San Diego last week, we spoke with, Sandy Alderson pretty much every day, uh, and what he told us was that they're at $100 million right around that, and yeah, there's a little flexibility up a couple million, down a couple million in terms of payroll, but to add $20 million to this year's payroll, I just don't see a way that's going to happen without subtracting that same type of money, and even if you could say, hey, Colorado, you take back, I don't know, $5 million a year, $6 million a year even, Unless they were able to find some way to, to offload the contract with Curtis Granderson, I don't see that really taking place. And then in addition, the one thing that Sandy Alderson and, and this executive office, this front office, likes to do is have the young, controllable assets. And six years, $118 million on a guy that's just coming off major surgery, it just doesn't seem like a risk that this team would want to take given the – financial cap that they seem to be operating under right now. And, Steve, understanding that the finances rule all, we understand that. If we want to play a little fantasy baseball here, uh, you know, some have compared this to maybe the kind of move to bring in a Hernandez, to bring in a Piazza, to bring in a Gary Carter from the past. Uh, if you if, if taking the money aside and playing a little fantasy baseball, if it doesn't include a Wheeler and a DeGrom and it's more of a prospect base, a Syndergaard, a Montero, uh, a Plowicki, how comfortable are you doing something like that, taking basically three of the top ten prospects in this organization and putting that towards Tulowitzki as a player, finances excluded? You know, it's interesting because it's a debate. I'm, I'm sure you guys are well aware that, that it's pretty polarizing and you get a lot of strong arguments on both sides. If it were me and if the finances were aside and you just said, hey, would you do a deal centering, you know, around Noah Syndergaard and maybe a couple other prospects and bring back Troy Tulowitzki? I'd do it in a heartbeat. I think that, that it is the type of player that could push them to the next level if he is healthy. And everything you read, the rehab's been going well and possibly could even be ready for opening day this year. So it is something where when you look at the way baseball is set up today, it's probably the worst time in the history of baseball to have so much great young pitching, right? And if you were to put Troy Tulowitzki into that lineup, all of a sudden you've got a pretty dangerous lineup, one through eight, really. And in addition to that, you're not giving up that much in terms of what your present team looks like. And if you're telling me that I'm going to go into a season with a rotation of Harvey, Wheeler, DeGrom, Nice, Cologne, with guys like, even Max maybe knocking at the door later in the year, yeah, I'd do that deal if that meant giving Troy Tulowitzki uh, a shot to play shortstop for the Mets. Uh, again, is it is it without risk? Of course not. But I do think that 
there is a bit of a window here where the Mets would be able to take advantage. Um, again, this is all, you know, it's all fantasy baseball. You're talking about the money aside, but if you're asking would I be comfortable subtracting Noah Syndergaard and putting in Troy Tulowitzki, I would absolutely be comfortable based on how much pitching depth this team already has. SNY Steve Gelbs is our guest. Joe Bono, Mike Silva, Weekend Watchdogs. While you were down in San Diego, a lot of the trade talks around the Mets circled around Dylan G. And Mets trying to fight or sue there, not because they want to trade Dylan G, but more along the lines of they have to trade Dylan G because they have too much starting pitching. My question is for you, though, knowing that Harvey's coming back from Tommy John surgery, knowing Cologne's still at his advanced age, John Neese and what his shoulder has been and the amount of MRIs he's had over the course of years, do they have as much major league ready starting pitching as we want to think that they have? Yeah, I really do think they, they do have it. Um, and this is a team, you know, listen, is, is there a part of it that they want to get rid of, you know, the $5 million that G will probably get and, and maybe have a little more flexibility that way? I think that's a part of it. But I think the overarching part of it is really they've got six arms for five slots. And if you look at Dylan G, everyone wants to say, well, maybe he becomes a long guy out of the pen. I don't think Dylan G profiles that well out of the bullpen. Uh, and they've got enough back there right now where, where I don't think they need him. So I, I do think that that them trading him to free up that spot just so that it's five guys for five spots, I think that's legitimate. And in terms of major league ready talent, Rafael Montero proved at the end of last year that, that he's right there. He's pretty close. So I think if you're a Mets fan, you should be comfortable if there's an injury and there's a need to bring up a guy that Rafael Montero is getting there. Uh, and then on the other side of it you know if you don't make this deal and Noah Syndergaard's still there I know he didn't have the greatest season last year and he's still extremely young but I would be very surprised if Noah Syndergaard did not make an appearance at the major league level this year if he's still in the Mets organization I cannot fathom a scenario where this guy doesn't get up there sooner rather than later so you have Montero you have Syndergaard and honestly in the people that I've spoken to in the front office I wouldn't be shocked if Steven Matz made his major league debut this season either. So, um, so yes, <clears throat> pardon me, guys. Uh, to answer your question, yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about losing Dylan G and not having the ability to, to fill that need at the major league level depth-wise should there be an injury or two. We have uh, Steve Gelbs of uh, SNY joining us. Uh, the shortstop position, I mean, we probably debated this ad nauseum, but uh, we just talked about Tulowitzki. Let's talk more realistically when you talk about finances. Let's say the Mets can move a Dylan G, add some payroll flexibility. One name that may be out there in January, if you listen to Sandy Alderson, and, and he's going to start to bargain shop, if you want to call that, the way things are exploding financially in, in the game in, in January. Stephen Drew, you know, bad season, sat out most of last year until the Yankees signed him. Um, I don't know what the Yankees' interest would be. They, they just traded Martin Prado, so... Who knows what the Yankees are going to do and what they could spend. But is Drew somebody that, if you want to talk more realistically, Steve, um, if you're not comfortable with Flores, and I guess you could tell us if you are, would you go that route? Do you feel comfortable going two years at a reasonable deal uh, on a Stephen Drew? I think when you talk real realistically, that's more what you're probably going to see, a Stephen Drew, a guy like that, that at the end of the offseason – He's not signed. His price is lowered, and the Mets can make a run at him. Um, I would certainly be comfortable with Stephen Drew defensively, and, and I'm of the belief 
that if you're going to build this team around starting pitching, you know, you got to have better defense up the middle. No one's going to, to mistake Wilmer Flores and Daniel Murphy for, you know, a couple of gold glove middle infielders that can turn one of the more uh, beautiful double plays in the league. It's not the way it is. So I think you do, if, if you're building a team around pitching, you're going to want to build it around defense as well. And that's where it kind of doesn't match up having guys like Flores and Murphy in that middle infield behind this pitching staff. That being said, the one thing that I don't think people give Wilmer Flores enough credit for is that he actually did a pretty good job, especially as he got more and more comfortable in that role and recognized later in the season that, hey, this was, this was his job for the rest of the year. He did a pretty good job of making the routine plays, which is what you're going to want from him if his bat can play at the major league level. And that, to me, is the big question because the last four to five weeks of the season, his bat was playing at the major league level. He was hitting close to uh, 300 over that stretch of time. Now, you talk to talent evaluators, you talk to scouts, you talk to guys that are around the game, and, and September is always the hardest time to evaluate talent because the same way that, you know, the Mets are calling up guys to give him a shot, the same way Bilton Herrera was up here, even though, you know, he hadn't touched AAA yet. Um, that's happening with pitchers across the league, and that's happening, that's happening all over. So you're not necessarily getting the best uh, indicator of how his bat would play a full season. But I do think that the Mets are intrigued by the potential pop he could bring at the shortstop position. And if he can do that over the course of a full season, again, a big if, if he can do that, I do think you can live with some of the defensive shortcomings as long as he continues to improve and continues to make the routine plays. If I'm the Mets and a guy like Stephen Drew is out there and it's a reasonable deal, I would take a shot at Stephen Drew, more so for the defensive aspect and the, and the hope that you know he's not going to hit one sweaty at 162, I think, this year. So um, you know the hope that he's, he's going to improve upon that. But I would also, in signing Stephen Drew, I would not guarantee him playing time in the starting position. And if you can't get him without guaranteeing that, then I, I don't know that I would do it. I would bring him into camp, and I would, I would uh, say, hey, you guys, duke it out. There's an open competition here. And if Flores beats Steven Drew out, then see what you got. Um, but, I'm, you know, I think, I think Mets fans sometimes lose the fact that, that I don't think it's that the Mets are obsessed with Wilmer Flores or, or so thrilled with him at the position, and they're trying to convince everybody that he's, you know, this, this top-end major league shortstop. But you look at the other options that are available, and this is, it goes back to our initial conversation with Troy Fulowitzki, the other guys that are available via trade, via free agency, via the international route, it's not like anybody in that group stands out so much that you say, you know what, these guys are head and shoulders above Wilmer Flores and getting them will put the Mets over the top. And I, you know, and I don't want to cut you guys off for any potential questions, um, so you can stop me in a second if, if you're going to ask this <laughs> a little bit. But, but the thing that I always think is funny about this conversation about shortstop for the Mets is that Wilmer Flores is not going to be the reason the Mets do or do not make the playoffs. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't upgrade that position because of that, but the bigger question mark going into this season is will David Wright be David Wright or at least closer to David Wright? And can Curtis Granderson not hit 220? Because those are the guys that really, you know, David Wright and Curtis Granderson this past season were closer to David Wright and Curtis Granderson of years past. The Mets would have been right in the hunt. So I think sometimes we lose 
sight of that, that, yeah, it's, it's certainly a conversation to be had about Wilmer Flores and the shortstop position, but I don't think when all is said and done that that's going to make or break the Mets season. Steve Gelbs is our guest, sports anchor and reporter at SNY. Follow him on Twitter at Steve Gelbs. No one is comparing Michael Goddard signing to the Chris Young signing from a year ago, but at the same time, in just the last week, and you see what the Padres have done, acquiring Matt Kemp, acquiring Justin Upton, acquiring Will Myers. If Sandy had to do it all over again, knowing what kind of quality outfielders would be available in the trade market, do you think he still goes so aggressively and offers Kadir that two-year deal very early on uh, in November? You know, I do, actually. I, I really do. And I think, you know, honestly, and it, it may or may not be a popular take, but you know, I think Sandy Alvis is actually a pretty smart guy. And I, The one thing you could say about him, whether you agree with him or not, um, he knows what's going on. I mean, he knows the, the market, and, and he's aware of who would become available. But it just comes down to, again, you've got the ability, if you're the Mets, and this, is, and this is the main thing, and this is where I think it sometimes becomes unpopular, and I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, but if the Mets can get someone without having to give up this stable of young prospects, they're going to do it. And in their minds, Michael Kadire is a perfect kind of bridge guy, right, where you get the two years, he's got the ability to play the outfield, he's got the ability to play both corner infield positions. He's a guy that could certainly be a platoon candidate should Lucas Duda continue to struggle so mightily against lefties. So he fills this hole for two years, and he certainly is an upgrade over what they had, right? And then in addition to that, he's a guy that probably, and I, and I, I asked, you know, I asked guys in the front office about this. I spoke to some of them on the air about this last week from San Diego. Um, he is a guy that probably fills that, that gap before a Michael Conforto, a Brandon Nimmo maybe, are ready to take over that position in the outfield. And that, again, is where you have to kind of think big picture. And I know Mets are tired of thinking big picture, and I'm not saying that this team won't compete this year or next year. But the one thing, if you, if you kind of track how the Mets have gone about this thing under Sandy Alderson, they started by, by stocking up on young pitching, right? And, and they did it through the draft, through trades, and, and they've really developed one of, if not the best, young stable of pitchers in the game. Now the second phase is starting to be implemented, where the last four years they've drafted position players, three of them out of high school, and last season was Michael Conforto um, out of college, and he's a guy that's on the fast track, right? And so they've got these two power-hitting outfielders in Conforto and Brandon Nimmo who aren't that far off. And so I think that the Mets, they're, while, while they're on the verge of competing this year, and I don't think that anyone can argue that this team should, uh, barring some major injuries or, or just something going completely wrong, I mean, there's no reason this team shouldn't be there, competitive, in contention uh, throughout this season. But I also think at the same time, instead of saying, hey, you know what, we're going we're gonna to trade for a, a guy like Justin Upton who's going to be a free agent at the end of this year, and we may or may not be able to keep him. And if we do keep him, we're going to have to give him a ton of money, and, and it's not going to be one of these flexible, young, controllable assets. Uh, instead of doing that and trading for him and giving up some of your young, controllable assets, they say, let's sign Kadire. Let's assume that last year was an outlier in terms of his injury and how few games he played. And it really was, if you look at um, the five years before that, I believe he averaged 135 games. So 
Um, you just kind of got to hope that last year was, was, it was a couple of freak injuries and he can get back to what he was in terms of that everyday player coming into this season. You use him, you, you try and compete this year, you try and compete next year, all the while you're grooming some homegrown guys to take over in the outfield when he's finished, when Kadir's finished, when Granderson's contract is finished, um, and then you still have those pitchers, you still have these outfielders now, and you've got yourself a nice homegrown team that can compete for years. So that, you know, again, it's it's not a question of do you agree with how they're going about it, but just to kind of think big picture, long term, um, you can certainly see where the plan is. Again, trying to figure out how to best do this while keeping the – I mean, Sandy Alderson said the payroll, you know, they can't really go. They're not going to really go much beyond $100 million. They're right in that sweet spot right now. So – with that being the reality, this is the way they're approaching it, and it's not an insane way to approach things. Steve, one other acquisition this offseason that has been talked about is Kevin Long. I had a chance to talk to Kevin Long a couple of times when he was hitting coach for the Yankees. The Mets are excited about him. Uh, you mentioned Wright and Granderson. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, you know, with Granderson, with the new dimensions, I think adding nine home runs to his tally is that to look as bad. Uh, you know, based on some of those uh, pieces of information that were thrown out there, right? We know it's an injury situation. Uh, Long, you know, any thoughts about, um, you know, what you've heard about what they think he can do with those two guys and, and just in general, if he's going to have the impact that, uh, you know, a hitting coach can have, you know, within reason, I guess I would say. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good way to put it because I'm one of those people that's skeptical about how, much of an impact hitting coaches really do have. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think they can help with kind of pinpointing certain things and, and maybe building a guy's confidence back up. But for the most part, I think the lineups are what they are. That being said, I don't think that there is a, a negative at all in bringing in a guy that clearly has had success with Curtis Granderson in the past. And whether that is something that, you know, is somewhat mental or not, you know, the the whole mental aspect of the game is, is sometimes even more important than the physical aspect of the game. And if Curtis Granderson comes into this season and he's got a guy that he knows, that he knows he's worked with before and has had success with before, who knows if that changes the mindset going in and all it takes is a hot start maybe to get him back to where the Mets need him to be. So uh, for that reason alone, I think that it was a, a good a good higher and Kevin Long's a guy that fits right in with the Mets philosophy you know he's a guy that you find your pitch you you look for your pitch and when you get your pitch you don't miss it and that's um and and so I think it fits right in with the team's philosophy and again forget about anything else if he can even get a little bit more out of Curtis Granderson I think it's worth it because simply put the Mets just can't afford that Curtis Granderson hit through 27 again next year and not just that average, but the way in which he went about that average where there would be, you know, three, four, five-week stretches where, you know, the guy was an automatic out, and that's what the Mets can't afford to have this season. Steve, um, Henry McNeil was Santa Claus and familiar with his, was his little helper at the uh, holiday familiar, party. Familiar was the, uh, I don't know if little helper is the right word. That is probably, <laughs> that guy is probably, they probably had a custom make that elf costume. Where are you going to find an elf costume that big? So if he was assisting Mejia, kind of setting him up, 
at the holiday party. My question is, will he be doing that come the regular season? Do you think Mejia should be given the benefit of the doubt as the team closer? You have Bobby Parnell coming back, but you don't know exactly when he's going to be ready. Final question, who ends up being this team's closer, you think, in the end? Cool. That's a good one, man. I, I mean, I, that's one of those questions where I almost don't want to go on record giving an answer because I have legitimately no idea where it's going to go. You hear so many different things, and it's, I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches, really. It's kind of remarkable, right, if you look at where this bullpen's been over the last number of years to where it has now uh, come to in just one season. The names that you're going to keep in mind, not just Mejia, not just Familia, but obviously Parnell. We were out in San Diego. Uh, Terry was pretty upfront about the fact that Bobby Parnell is the incumbent closer, and it's his job to lose. Now, it might be easy for him to lose it considering he's probably not going to be ready for, uh, you know, a few weeks. And, and so I don't think that um, – I don't think if Henry Mejia comes out at spring training and they have him closing games and he's, you know, I don't know, uh, eight for his first eight or something like that, I don't think they're just going to give the job to Parnell back. But Terry Collins said, hey, it's Bobby Parnell's job to lose. He also mentioned Vic, but I don't, I don't really see Vic Black uh, surpassing – any of those three guys, the closer, I think he's tremendous, but I also think for him to be in a realistic conversation as a closer, he's really got to get, um, you know, a little bit better control because the guy the guy has a tendency to put some people on base, but also has a remarkable ability to get at him, uh, get out of jam. So, you know, Vic Black is certainly an important piece. I don't think he's in that conversation as much as the Mets want to make it out like he is. At the end of the day, if you're asking me where, when, you know, when September comes around, who will be closing games for the Mets? If you ask me today, I would say Jerry's familiar. You talk to people around the Mets, and both publicly and privately, they love this guy's makeup, this guy's stuff, and they really, really look at uh, look at familiar, pardon me, as the closer of the future. Whether that is right out of spring training, we'll see. Um, but I really, really think that at some point this season, but definitely down the line, Familia is the closer for the New York Mets. You see, we did get you on the record, kind of. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> at the yeah. End. Yeah, I didn't want to do it, uh, but you got me. <laughs> and uh, what, what can Mets fans expect from you and SNY between now and the start of the season? What do you got going on? Listen, man, we, uh, you know, we're, we're, over, we're all over everything. We've got our hot stove shows weekly. Anything happens, you know, SY will be the place to, to tune in. Um, wish we could have brought you a little bit more from the winter meetings. We were, trust me, we were out there. We were, I was sitting on that set uh, till, till the wee hours of the morning on the East Coast waiting for things to happen. But uh, but turns out the, the biggest move they made was the John Mayberry Jr. signing. But we'll be, uh, you know, we'll be all over the offseason. Anything <laughs> happens. I, and I do think that, that something will happen. Probably, you know, probably January. I wouldn't be shocked if they if they sign one of those shortstops that we were talking about before. And then, uh, and then spring training's right around the corner. We got to down there. I actually think that this. Don't quote me on it. Everyone will hear me say this, but I think we've got uh, we're broadcasting even more spring training games than normal. So, um, so that's not that far off. New Year's uh, New Year's is in sight, and then it's it's getting down to Florida pretty soon after. You know, definitely not breaking into uh, oh yeah for the uh, John Mayberry uh, signing, but uh, hopefully hopefully there will be news uh, breaking, newsworthy uh, real, real soon, and uh, we look forward to watching your coverage uh, throughout the year and everyone over at SNY. Steve Gelb, thanks so much for joining us. You got it, boys. 
So great stuff out of Steve Gelbs. Um, expect to be seeing a lot more of him on Mets broadcast here in 2015 with the departure of Kevin Burkhart. Although nothing's officially been uh, announced in terms of who will be uh, Kevin's replacement. And, you know, I think, you know, listening to sports radio yesterday, Mike, you know, Mike Francesa was in the boat of you would, I wouldn't take Tulowitzki for nothing. You know, if they mm. gave me his contract for absolutely nothing, I wouldn't take it because it's too big of That's a contract, silly. too big of a risk, and it unwinds right. everything, undermines everything the Mets have worked for the last four or five years. I don't know how you feel about it. To me, if Colorado gets desperate enough to know that his value is only dwindling at this point and would accept Noah Syndergaard and would pay 35 40% of the salary – to me, that's a move I got to make if I'm the Mets. Absolutely, I think you got to get the doctors to sign off on the hip thing. And obviously, a bad hip at the age of 30 is not going to get better. We've seen that with A. Rod. I think there's two schools of thought. It's interesting because the New York Post played this out. You have Ken Davidoff who wrote a column today, basically saying, "Hey, calm down. You can't just go all in. And as much as you want this to be Keith Hernandez, Gary Carter, maybe Mike Piazza, and those kind of transformative moves." that help those additions of Mets teams to become contenders. You don't want to just go in, give up uh, Wheeler and, and Syndergaard and, and Plowicki and, and Montero, you know, some Nimmo, some kind of four or five prospect package, and take on the money with a guy who didn't play the second half of the year for the most part because of bad hits. I agree with that. What I disagree with Ken is that at some point, I, I, I have to see Sandy Alderson make a bold move or negotiate and bring somebody in, and that's the key term. This is a negotiation because the Rockies are asking for a lot when a team isn't boxed into a corner. The Rockies are not boxed in the corner. And if you look at Sandy's history, and maybe you could debate the Blue Jays' Dickey trade, but San Francisco got boxed into a corner with the Zach Wheeler situation. Um, and then with Dickey, I think Toronto was – there wasn't the glut of pitching on the market like there is now – and, and there was somewhat of a budget, so I think that they felt Dickey was a guy that, from performance and, and the contract extension, this was worth uh, the price of admission. So he's been in advantageous situations. And remember, Dickey, uh, I believe there was another year. He wasn't a free agent. Well, of course there was another year. So it wasn't like they had One more year, to yeah. Dickey. Yeah. So he's been in the capboard seat. Here, Colorado's like, hey, you guys think you're contenders. Um, if you want them, here's what you got to do. And this is where you got to push back a little bit. So, you know, I'm and, not, uh, I, you know, I, I agree. Listen, if it's Plowicki, Syndergaard, Montero, I, I don't know why you wouldn't want to do that. Now, you got to start bringing it to the, here's the other problem, Joe. I know you got a point, but here's the other problem. Now you're eating into your pitching depth, and now that becomes a problem because we go back to that 8 to 10 starters, which they think they have, and I'm not sure they do have it. You see, even to me, that is that is too much, giving up three prospects, you know, Montero, Syndergaard, and Ploiecki for Troy Tulowitzki and the amount for of salary. For a healthy Tulowitzki? For a healthy Tulowitzki, But we don't know what a healthy Troy Tulowitzki is, and I think the risk, given his injury history and the money, means that, hey, we're not going to be able to give you three prospects when we're taking all that salary and he's coming off hip surgery. There's got to be a point in the middle. Now, if I'm the Rockies, i got to go to myself and say, are we going to do better than one of the top 10 pitching prospects in baseball for Troy Tulitsky at any point. No. The answer to that no. may be no. So if Look I'm in the Mets, I'm saying... Justin Upton didn't get a top 10 pitching prospect. He just got traded yesterday. No, absolutely. Yeah. And But to me, if they're willing to take, you know, they look at the Matt Kemp deal with the Padres as That's kind a of a template. Model. 
if they take 35, 40%, and all of a sudden Troy Tulowitzki's annual salary for the Mets is $13, $14 million, even if he's not producing what he's produced in the last couple of years when healthy, that's still a bargain when you look at what else is out there at the shortstop position and what other shortstops are getting. I mean, Troy Tulowitzki, even if he goes down a couple notches, is better than J.J. Hardy. Look what J.J. Hardy's contract is, $10, $11, $12 million. He's but, not um, going to hit, Joe, he's not going to hit 350, 360 outside of Colorado, but he's not a product. Everyone's going to get a, you know, here I go with another bump, the Colorado bump, a uh, much more real bump maybe. But um, he's going to hit 280, 290. He's going to have an OPS over 800. He's going to be an impact player. You cannot get these guys anymore. You have to develop them. Is Conforto that and, guy? Is Nimmo that guy? I don't think. I don't think they profile like that. Who knows? But and Mike certainly Troy Nimmo Tulewitzki, profiles that way. Troy Tulowitzki, even coming off the injury, if he was a free agent in 2014, I would tend to think he would get at least what's left on his deal, or oh, close to it. I mean, injury aside, yeah, you're going to get big money. I mean, so you're going to get. And and people are going to say, reasonable. well, this contract would be so debilitating to the Mets. Well, why sure. a Troy Tulowitzki at $20 million a year, especially if it goes lower, if Colorado pays a portion of it, why is that the ability, you know, why would that crush the Mets' payroll and future prospects? But Curtis Granderson making $15 million a year does not. Um, David Wright making $17, $18 million a year does not. To me, that, that, those contracts could still be worse than the contract you bring back for Troy Tulowitzki. Hey, so as the contract thing to me is not as big of an issue if they get some money. From, from Colorado, it's about what you're giving up. And I'm willing to Look, give up the top prospect, the best project prospect in the Mets farm system, but I'm not going to give two or three or four guys because if he gets hurt in year two, year three, or even year one, then that, that does all of a sudden push you back. And that's where negotiation comes into play. And, and look, I know we have some guys on hold. Let's go to the phone lines if you want to call in the number 646-716-8187. Any trade is a risk. The Padres bringing in Upton, he's, he, he may not re-sign with them. That's a risk. Bringing in Matt Kemp, that's a risk. Um, you know, there's always going to be a out. risk. When could, you you imagine, could you imagine if the Mets were having the type of offseason the San Diego Padres had? Can you imagine? They might you actually, might actually sell, sell some, some tickets. tickets. Now, that does, that's not a reason to make a move for the sake of making a move, and that's Davidoff's point. I agree with that. But think about the risk that Steve Phillips took in 1998 bringing in Mike Piazza, for Preston Wilson, who was their top offensive prospect, uh, uh, um, um, Eddie Arnell, Jeffrey Getz. Yes, those two pitchers were their top pitching prospects. For a guy that you may only have half a year, a guy that many people said no chance he wants New York. Joe, I was at many games that summer, and Mike Piazza did not look happy. He got booed. Now, he had that big September, hit like 400, Mets missed out, but there was a re-energized connection between him and the fans, and maybe that's what saved him on top of the fact that they gave him the biggest contract in baseball history at that time for a catcher who's 30, a catcher, which you didn't know who might have been on, who some people thought were on steroids back yeah, then. I don't think, you didn't know. I don't think bringing in Troy Tulowitzki derails the Mets' future plans. If you have this pitching depth that you've been talking about and you have all these young guys coming through the farm system beyond Syndergaard and Mats, there's guys right. even below that that the Mets are high on. Right. Then trading one or two of them to get Tulowitzki to me is worth the risk. If those guys, if, if Tulowitzki doesn't pan out, there's no guarantee those guys are going to pan out either. And you got to right. tell me right now, there's more likelihood that Syndergaard comes to the major leagues next year and actually hurts his trade value because he'll be at the major league level. If he pitches to a high three-year rate in 10 starts, 
he'll actually decrease in his trade value than it is right now as a kind of, of top-level AAA prospect. A lot of red flags with Syndergaard. Uh, again, the number is 6467. I'm sure he has some thoughts on the Yankees deal. Uh, you know, Joe, uh, you know, obviously big baseball guy. Joe, long time. Joe Del Grippo, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Good. What do you Hello? think of uh, what's going on? What are your thought? What are your thoughts on a big? I guess a big deal is a, a somewhat of a an exaggeration for the Yankees. What do you thought of the Yankees deal? That's right up your alley. That kind of deal. It, it is up my alley, and I, and and I thought I I was very negative against it. I'm a big David Phelps fan. Always have been since seeing him in the in the in the low minors up to the high minors and everything. Um, I never thought he was given his shot with the Yankees as as a uh, a, a full time starting pitcher, and I think that hurt him. But the more I look at it, the more I like it, and it's similar to the Granderson trade a couple of years ago. I didn't like it originally, but the more I looked at it and looked at the numbers and, and figured how Granderson was going to fit into the lineup, I thought it was a lot better deal um, after my first instinct. Uh, same way with this thing. The one thing I really didn't like about it, I'm okay with the pitcher versus pitcher thing, but giving up Martin Prado, to me, uh, it, it doesn't help the Yankees much at all. Uh, with with teams keeping 12 and sometimes 13 pitchers on a staff at any point during the season, versatility has become a key. The Rays started out a bunch of years ago, moving Ben Zobris and a couple other players around, Sean Rodriguez. Uh, but, and you see, saw teams this year using a lot of players at different positions. Prado was that type of guy for the Yankees. And you saw what, you know, what the Giants did with their offense. You know, guys didn't strike out. They put the ball in play. And when you put the ball in play, you get that little blue pit into right center field that drives in two runs. And that's the type of guy Prado was. And, and I hate to see it, that type of guy go. Because baseball, you know, with the heavy you know, arm throwers on a mound coming in, six, seven, eight innings throwing like you know, high 90s, it's, it's something where you need those guys to put the ball in play and, and, and not just go KKK all the time. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry to see him go, but I think Ivaldi might be uh, worth it. Um, the guy does throw hard, and, uh, you know, and if, uh, you know, Gil Patterson and uh, Rothschild can work their magic, uh, I think it'll be good for the Yankees overall. And, and the thing with the Yankees I look at, it's almost like they're looking at, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, how, okay, we think we can win, but we're certainly understanding that no matter what we do, we're not going to be the favorites or guaranteed. This is not the Yankees where they had that legacy for 10, 15 years. So let's bring in guys with some upside who we could help us this year, but maybe not, see where we're at, and then I could see them 50, 60 games in, looking at the rosters, seeing the landscape, seeing how good Toronto and Boston are, and then right. maybe making a big move June, July, versus let's do everything here in December. Because no matter what they do, even if they brought in Scherzer tomorrow, Joe, I'm not – feeling like the Yankees are guaranteed to be a 9,500-win team. So that's how I see them, how they're behaving, or at least how Cashman's behaving right now. And I think Cashman thought that last year, too, um, with, with Alex out of the lineup for the whole year, not, you know, whatever you think about Alex, his presence in the lineup is much beneficial for the Yankees because it's just another bat there that, 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 that scares pitchers and everything. And, and he hits 20-plus home runs and drives in his runs and gets his walks and gets on base. But I think they thought that last year, too. And that's why they didn't do any, any huge deals last year. And they just kind of let things, you know, they signed Tanaka, but that was it. And they let their young pitchers throw a little bit. You know, Nova was back in. They brought some young arms up. And they went with, you know, they didn't make that big deal during the season because they didn't think they were, gonna, they were good enough last year. This year is the same type of thing. I don't think they're 
they're not better than Toronto. They're, you know, Boston improved. But I don't think Boston's going to be as good as everybody thinks. And Baltimore still has a bunch of young pitchers that are going to bring up. So there's three teams there that are better than the Yankees. And I don't think the Yankees are going to win the division. And then you're competing with a bunch of other teams across the league that are going to get the wild cards. You know, I mean, Oakland, they hurt themselves a little bit. But, you know, Seattle's up and coming. And the, the Angels are going to win a division out there. And there's a couple teams in the Central that, are, that could be like 90-win teams. So they may not be a playoff team team this year and I think that's what Cashman's doing I think you're right Mike he's looking to build maybe to when some of their young uh, improving hitters in the minors double A they're going to be triple A this year uh, when they're ready you can put some of the young pitchers together with some of the young hitters and kind of uh, get more youth into the lineup and then on in their rotation and I think that'll be better for like 2016 rather than 2015. Hey I, I know one last thing I was thinking of you before you, you hop off uh, <laughs> Wally Matthews at ESPN New York had uh the whole A-Rod conspiracy thought about yeah. – you and I have talked about this on air, off air. I know you called it. A couple years ago. The Yankees trying to, yeah, trying to embarrass A-Rod into quitting. It's not going to happen. I mean, no one's walking away from $60 million. Um, Correct. I don't know your thoughts. You know, could, could A-Rod help? I mean, hips – Joe, you play ball. We talked about this with Tulowitzki, Joe, and I. Hips are a very – you know, you have a bad hip, you can't play baseball. You and I both know that. He's got two. Correct. So that's the interesting thing. Uh, yeah, I, there's no way A-Rod is quitting and retiring and leaving all that money on the table. That's not what he's going to do. Uh, so, I mean, I agree that the Yankees are trying to play hardball here. And we had spoken about it a couple of years ago. What I would have done if you don't want him on the team, you come out in a press conference, say he's part of the team because we owe him this money. He's going to be the 25th man. He's not going to play. And I'm not going to talk about it anymore the rest of the season. That's what Girardi and Cashman should come out and do. And then all of a sudden, A-Rod's being pummeled with questions day after day after day. Why aren't you playing? Why aren't you playing? And maybe that forces Alex's hand not to retire or quit, but accept a buyout for a reduced amount of what they owe him. That might be the best deal. But I do think you know, if the Yankees you know, start to get off strong and everything, I think Alex could be a big part of the team because he is an offensive threat still just because of, of, of his, his background and his, and his perceived abilities and everything. He still takes his walks. You know, a couple of years ago when he played, he didn't hit for a high average. He didn't hit for a ton of home runs, but he took his walks and, and he lengthened that lineup because, you know, pitchers are scared of him. You know, Babe Ruth late in his career, too, in his mid to late 30s, he wasn't the same thing he was in the early, in the early 1920s. But he was still a formidable presence, and pitchers were afraid of him. And so it made the whole lineup better. Uh, same thing with Alex. So if you don't get him out prior to the beginning of the season, I say you use him. Use him a little at third to give Headley a rest. Use him as a DH, alternating with Garrett Jones. And then maybe play him a little bit at first base. He's not a terrible athlete. And I think you, know, you can use him to some time of versatility if you don't get rid of him by the beginning of the season. Hey, man, listen, great call. Thanks a lot. Enjoy your weekend, all right? Let's catch up again. All right, Mike. Thanks. All right. Bye now. Joe from Point Pleasant. Hey, he made some good points, Joe. Uh, uh, Joe. I mean, he, uh, I, I, you know, I can't really disagree with him when it comes to, uh, I, you know, I think he's overrating Prado a little bit, like I said, but in, 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 with staffs at 12 or 13, a guy who could play six positions, five positions, there is a value there. And he hit great for the Yankees, the Yankee bump. And what you know, worth. maybe Garrett Jones gets the Yankee bump too. Certainly a left-handed hitter that could benefit from playing yep. in Yankee Stadium and the short right field porch. And he's someone that could play first place in the outfield. So you might lose versatility at second and third, but he gains some more versatility at first, and you keep that um, option to play someone and spot somebody in here's, the outfield. Here's one before we take a break. One more Yankee bump. I've been researching Yankee bumps as we were on the air. Here's one. 
from 1977. Now, you all remember 1977 that the Mets traded Dave Kingman the same day, the, the, the massacre, the midnight massacre when Seaver got traded to the Reds. He went from the Mets to San Diego, San Diego to California, the Angels, and then the Angels in September, for some reason, traded him to the Yankees. First three games as a Yankee, home run two RBIs, home run two RBIs, came off the bench for home run, put up numbers uh, that season that, Joe, are Babe Ruth-esque in a short sample. He, in 27 at-bats, hit four home runs, seven RBIs, uh, a 1.167 OPS, OPS plus of 208. That's Bonds, Babe Ruth-esque. There's a Yankee bump. There it is. I'm telling you. We can get this thing going. We can put the batters up. It's like Monument Park, but better. That's what I said. You're speechless. You have nothing to say. I mean, how how far back are we going to go? I could go back to the 30s. Anyway, maybe you want to call in and give us a Yankee bump. 646-716-8187. We're taking you all the way up to noon. We can watch dogs. We'll come back. We have John Wertheim of SI later on at 11 o'clock hour. Um, talk a little Knicks. Maybe if you want to, you know, obviously if you have a baseball question, come on, pop us your baseball question. And, uh, you know, who knows? We have uh, a big Patriots-Jets matchup. So I might even pick the Jets this week. You'll have to see if you want to stick around and see my NFL pick. So keep it going. Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We'll be right back. Legendary Boston Globe columnist Bob Ryan joined the Weekend Watchdogs. Is the game worse? Is it different? You know, what is your opinion on where the NBA has gone? It's still the best basketball in the world with the, with the best athletic basketball players, and the coaching is phenomenal. Uh, it, it, the defenses are sophisticated. It's hard to score in this league now. What I don't like about the game and why I don't like it as much as I once did, but I still like it, is the, uh, the, the three-point shot has completely taken over the game. It's distorted the game at every level. I, 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 would, I, I know it's, we're never going to get rid of it, but I, I just don't think it's been a good thing for the game, uh, and it's caused the style of play. Uh, and that it's not as enjoyable as it once was. And the, the disappearance of true post people uh, is, a, is a problem. Uh, and the biggest, biggest thing is the, the lost art of the true fast break. To hear guests on the NBA and more, tune in to the Weekend Watchdogs every Saturday, 10 to noon on Blog Talk Radio. That's uh, Darlene Love, and I don't know if you caught it this week, but apparently she has sung that song at the last episode before holiday break for David Letterman for over 30 years, and this year was the last year she did it. So it was actually the most touching thing I watched. They actually showed him introducing her, and they went back like all the years uh, with the song kind of you know meshed perfectly. And you just see how people age, and it, no, it was, uh, it was touching. Actually, you were watching the thing late that night. got me most into the Christmas spirit more than anything else. I wasn't watching late night. I watch Fallon now. He's much funnier, I think, than David Letterman. But um, just in terms of uh, YouTube or something, if you want to catch something, you're a Letterman fan, you know the show, you want to get reminiscent that, that, that it's ending, I thought this little Darlene Love Letterman montage was worth seeing. Did, uh, have you finished your Christmas shopping? 
Yeah, pretty much done. Did some online stuff mostly. I don't really go do the malls or anything like that. So everything has been uh, delivered in boxes hey, or they're in envelopes or tickets that are going to be out this week. There's a couple of shocks. My first shock is that all of a sudden, I guess, Tyson Chandler is Bill Russell. I, didn't, I, I must have missed that when he was here. That was my first shock this week. The second shock is I, I did not realize there's a checkers by your humble abode on Court Street. To me, yeah, that absolutely. shocked me. Checkers to me is more blue collar, let's say, maybe a, more of a um, lesser upper professional area than Brooklyn Heights. Court, is that fair to say? Court Street is um, Court Street's kind of different. It's kind of like you, you switch over to Court Street, and that one strip is a little bit different than the other areas of Brooklyn <laughs> Heights. It's kind of downtown Brooklyn more so than Brooklyn Heights. But yeah, I mean you'll have. That's where you got your Popeyes, your McDonald's, your Checkers, other Popeyes. fast food, frozen yogurt, things like that. You the movie the theaters there. The spicy, the spicy fried chicken. That'll if that doesn't make you, uh, uh, you know, your stomach rumble while you watch. I've never eaten that checkers. I've never, Neither I've never I. had Checkers. So that I missed the it. Tyson Chandler. So now all of a sudden, you know, the media. I love the media in this town. They have nothing to write about the Knicks. So now it's all of a sudden, I, I must have missed where the Knicks were championship contenders this year and that Tyson Chandler would take a five-win team that's been besieged by injuries, including their star player with a bad day. And all of a sudden, Tyson Chandler, the same Tyson Chandler that was constantly hurt, and I love Tyson Chandler, so I'm, not, I'm just trying to bring balance and perspective. The same Tyson Chandler that was constantly hurt was outplayed by Roy Hibbert, who has been pretty much on the back of the middle carton since that second-round series in 2013. And he was all of a sudden going to turn this team into something that, I guess, resembled a yeah, they would conference be, contender in the week. The, the Knicks would be worse off with Tyson Chandler because they probably have eight or nine wins. That's that would be actually a worse situation than right. them being their five and twenty that they are. Um, listen, did that trade the first trade by Phil Jackson look great right now because of the success Tyson Chandler's having and the lack of success that uh, Calderon and Shane Larkin are having in Dallin Bear? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. No, I mean, Larkin, to Larkin was going to be a backup player. Now, listen, Shane Larkin, they decided not to. I mean, they had a qualifying offer for him for next year, and they, they decided not to go that route. It was going to be very affordable, so he might end up somewhere else next year. Calderon's got a couple more years on his contract. He's in his mid-30s, and no one was comparing Samuel Dallenbear to Tyson Chandler. He knew it was going to be a drop-off at that position, and then he's got a couple second-round picks out of it, so... You know, it is what it is. And also got rid of Raymond Felton, which was helpful, not to mention. Who hasn't, but hasn't played. Um, I don't know. Well, do you have a problem with Phil Jackson Twitter, tweeting? No, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, if guys like Isola and I love Steve Powell into the trap and Charles Barkley, who just says things to say things, I think he's entertaining. I have no problem with him and Reggie Miller doing the games. Um, I mean, he's just basically making his point. And they act like this, the, the biggest foolish narrative out there is that Phil is home is out vacationing and, and running the team via Skype and then he's basement relaxing, watching the Knicks like you and I would. And he's, and he's disengaged. I mean, in a world of it's just, it's silly. And I actually this didn't have a problem with about, tweeting. This is what I'll say about the Twitter stuff is that he has enough opportunities to speak to the media and get his message and feelings out there that he doesn't have to be reenact reactionary and respond to Chris Sheridan or so you want him to have a Charles press Clark. conference the next day. That's the point of Twitter. We can just break Mike, those as a, as a general manager, president of the New York Knicks, 
he has a forum whenever he wants it to address concerns, thoughts, perceptions of the team. He doesn't have to be reactionary and responding to people. If he wants to put Why out general Twitter thoughts, different? he can. It Why is Twitter like that? You're putting Twitter on like this like secondary. I mean, if, if Ken Rosenthal because could it appears that he's job. getting defensive, a guy that eleven championships, that has his avatar as the book eleven rings, that his first tweet was about having eleven rings that he is not feeling like he has to defend his philosophy to all these people right now, where I would prefer that the president of the New York Knicks would be kind of, you know, stoic and like in, in just feeling, he'd be resolute in what he feels about and just let people and all the noise not bother him and stay the course that he has set and have confidence that in the coach he hired, in the system that he's implementing, and just keep on moving forward. The well, fact that he's, he's reactionary and responding to criticism but, makes it feel like no, he's, that he's got to answer to everybody. He hasn't answered people for 25 years. Now all of a sudden he's got to answer to everybody? I mean, he's, doing the, he's, he's basically doing what you said. He's just doing it in 140 characters. And he said these things at press conferences, what, a week ago? And again, I understand people have yeah, to leave it They're covering though. the Nick B. I mean, look, let's, let's call it like it is. This is the part that, that, that we have to just put out there. And sometimes fans, with all due respect, are not smart enough or they're too emotionally invested in the team to understand that. If you are a Knicks beat writer right now, Joe, put yourself in that shoot. How tough is this job going to be the next five, six months until the season's over? It's gonna be, it's, what are you, if your editor says, Joe, I need a Knicks story tomorrow, what are you going to write about again? You, what, what can you do to change it up, Joe? What are you going to write about today? I'm going to write about uh, Travis Ware and his emergence and uh, the right. really great play of Cole Aldridge. You, that's, you know what? That's a good feature. But no, the lazy way is, let's do a <laughs> Phil Jackson narrative. Let's talk about Phil and make jokes about Phil and his hip and all this well, stuff. Well, he's giving that's them the fodder for it, too. Tommy D talked about this last week with us. Where, you know, give me something different. There's a lot of things you can do. But if your whole goal is to throw out narratives and hurl bombs at the owner. And I'm not saying all of the, uh, some of them aren't fair, but no one said this was a championship team. Even Phil, did I think they're 5-23? and 23? No, but the point, and Barkley made a good point. You have guys on that last year, they contract. Naturally, they're going to be about me, and it's a system that's about we, not me. So I'm not... And I'm again, a, I'm happy deal. they're having a bad year. I'm happy they're having a bad year. Have as Why bad are you happy they possibly can? Because they have that... Yeah, I want, the, I want the pick to be as high as humanly possible to have a chance at Okafor. I mean, the fact that they don't have the 2016 first-round pick because of Bargnani, uh, I mean, and Steve Mills, I mean, you've got to be kidding me that they don't have a 2016 first-round pick because next year, people want the Knicks to now turn it around. They're going to give Phil next offseason. Tell you what, next offseason is not the big offseason. It's the one after that that's the big offseason with Anthony Davis and Kevin Durant and others in 2016. There's only going to be marginally good changes that can be made to this team in the offseason next year, and they don't even have a first-round pick that if they're pitiful again, they get to benefit from. So you look at what the Celtics are doing, you look at what the Sixers are doing, that is, to me, a much better path than what the Knicks are on. Because the Sixers and the Celtics have loaded up on draft picks, first and second round picks, have young assets, got rid of their players before they ended up expiring. Con- you know, didn't trade them, traded them when they actually still had some value, got some picks for them. I mean, look what the Celtics were able to do with Garnett and Pierce with that Nets trade. Look what they were able to do to get another first round pick for Rondo. They made a right, they recognized we won the championship. We got back to the finals. We were in the conference semifinals. We were in the conference finals. Our run is over. 
And know what? If we're going to be bad, we need to be really bad. And that's the way the NBA works. And that's why the Knicks should not have signed Carmelo Anthony because it put them in this middle ground of people having some expectations that they could win or be competitive when they don't benefit at all towards winning a championship by being around that point. None at all. And you're going to have this year is gone. This year is gone. You had next year is gone. And you're holding all hope, all hope that Anthony Davis or Kevin Durant come here in 2016. And you have two more productive years, maybe three more productive years of Carmelo Anthony. It was a bad move then. It's a bad move now. It looks worse and worse every day. And they should have blown it up the way I said they should have all year last. And, and before we get to the phone call, because we have a couple on hold, um, at least give Mark Cuban credit. You know, in a world of everybody worried about assets, like a bunch of uh, penny henny, the sky is falling. Um, you know, he goes out there and he goes for it with, with Rondo. Now, Rondo has warts. Can it free throws, mercurial sometimes with his attitude. But going for it, I think Dallas, I, listen, there's one team I'll root for to do well is Cuban and Dallas. I just admire his narrative. I admire what he's done. Um, you know, he's not perfect. We don't agree on everything. I do find his blog, uh, uh, his thoughts on economics and politics, although we don't agree on everything, to be very interesting and, and, and different, a different perspective. Uh, let's go to the Skype line. I don't know who this is. You're on the air with Mike Silva, Joe Bono. How you doing? Hey, guys. What's up? Oh, it's Elwood. So, El- so Joe, I'm trying to figure out, is Elwood's um, photoshops of us clever or creepy? We should do, like, maybe a poll on that. <laughs> it's borderline creepy. Yeah. Well, oh. Yeah, but I'm what do you got for us, hundreds of miles away, so, you know, there's people to kill much closer. Um, <laughs> well, let's that's not talk. That's reassuring, Elwood. Thank you. Yeah, well, there's people much locally I could yell, yeah. Um, well, let's not talk about the Knicks because I don't want to speak ill of the dead. But, um, no, what I want to talk about is um, with the Mets. This whole thing with Upton going to the Padres, all the Padres fans here at the bar were doing that whole, y'all going to make me lose my mind, but they were going, Upton here, Upton. And, I mean, they are just ecstatic. That team is building, restructuring, looking good. And then uh, I feel like a big sheet came in throwing $100 bills through a room, but I never got a one. You know, that's how I feel with this whole deal as a Mets fan. I feel like a lot of really great things happen, but nothing to the Mets. Well, First of all, I can't believe there are San Diego Padre fans in Indianapolis at the bar enough to actually come and get through. Guys, this is the United Nations of baseball. There's almost every team here, and besides the Fort Wayne team, the uh, Ten Caps, they're they're Padres. Oh, that makes ah, there you go. That makes sense. But, um, but I think I think the frustration, Elwood, is that, and we talked about this the last few weeks about the lack of creativity in the front office. Do they just make a plan, and then if that plan doesn't work, they just they just fall back and fall back. They don't look to make bold moves, trading major league talent for major league talent. They haven't done. You look at the major league players the Mets have acquired, and it's what Andres Torres, um, Ramon Ramirez, John Buck. I mean, they have not acquired many major league talent, much major league talent for major league talent type moves. It's always been, like Mike said, the type of maneuver where – the Mets have all the leverage and are able to handpick prospects from another team. They've been very, very good in that manner, um, have not been good when they've had to get creative. And A.J. Peller from Long Island went to Ivy League, went to Cornell. Man, this guy is making such a splash. And you know what? It may or may not work. And you know what? He's not done, Mike, because now he's created this surplus of outfielders, and he's got to trade Cameron Maven, Will Venerable. He's got Seth Smith that has some value. 
So all of a sudden, the San Diego Padres are an exciting team to watch, and the Mets are still making this slow, 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 innocent crawl towards being a contender. Speaking of uh, Ivy League, um, you saw uh, your Ivy League uh, basketball team get clobbered last Sunday by uh, number tw- now number 20, St. John's. You don't want to say nothing about that. Um, well, you, I, you, that's the holiday. When there was nine minutes left in the first half, and I think they were up, what, six for them, you were, ha- you were having visions, not of sugar plums, but of upsets in your head. And I'm I like, I, I'll lose to St. John's. These, these, games, these games tend to take the exact same script every single time where Fordham hangs with them for the first 10 minutes and gets blown out by 25. And I'm looking at my watch ready to go home, catch the end of the uh, 4 o'clock games. And my father-in-law, who's a St. John's fan and has season tickets, is just you know, oh, relishing every moment in there. He's a big – he likes this team. Does he think this team could be like a mid-major Sweet 16 run, like 1999? When Artest and those guys were, were still well, it was Art. Yeah, Artest was. Well, I mean, it's a different type of team. This team is uh, senior laden, right? So Sir Dominic Pointer right. and Harrison and Phil Green the Fourth and uh, Obekba. These guys have played for a while together, and now it's finally all coming together. It's been a long, long process for Steve Lavin, and he needed this type of year in a big, big way. Nice win over St. Mary's at Carnesecca yesterday, and we'll see. I mean, it looks like right now they should be a lock, certainly for the NCAA tournament. There's, Which is, there's uh, a good January, a good January, good January segment. We could do college basketball. We'll have to push. St. John may push us back another week on the whole. We might have to the push hockey. the hockey into mid-January because we have the Hall of Fame vote, and we have St. John's now. So you know that might have to push it back another week. Because I know, I know, like January first, you're gonna call me with like some guests that you want to put on, like at midnight. That's gonna say Happy New Year. Yeah, you know, we might do that. Hey, uh, let's take one last call before we go to. Uh, uh, John Wertheim, because we got John Wertheim of uh, SI, the uh, co-author of the Al Michaels book, joining us. Uh, Drew from Bayshore, Death Taxes and Drew, how you doing? Good, guys. Good morning to you. I was, uh, I was tuned in a little while ago, and I, Joe, I couldn't agree more with your uh, outlook on the uh, Knicks and as well as the Mets. I mean, of course you do, because you're both Brooklyn Nets fans. That's the whole, the whole dirty secret. No, no, when Joe no, told someone the Mets, on Twitter, the Mets. oh, the Mets. Well, yeah, you're, yeah, but you yeah. agree with the Knicks. You agree with the Knicks because oh, yeah. you, you're a Brooklyn Nets fan. No, no. I mean, I'm not as much as a, a basketball fan as I am a hockey fan, but I, I feel like that the Knicks never wanted to, you know, just do what they needed to do and go through the full rebuild. They were always doing this patchwork, patchwork, They, they did patchwork. that under Donnie Walsh. Yeah. They did it under Donnie and, Walsh, and it didn't work. Yeah. And, you know, but, but you know what, though? They had their out, though, with Carmelo. You know, they were able – they had their out, and they didn't take it. And now, like Joe said, they're in this middle ground. They don't have draft picks after this year. I mean, you're definitely going to be bad next year. I would almost guarantee it. You get almost – and let me ask you this, guys. You know, and this is one thing I don't hear anybody talking about. You're going to bring in – let's say you've got a nice top, top pick, right? I mean, what are they spending in college now? A year or two in college? He's not going to be polished, and you're going to have him – with Carmelo Anthony, and you think he's going to pan out like differently than what Carmelo is? I mean, I don't ever see Carmelo holding anyone else accountable on the court. You never see him speaking up or calling somebody out for, you know, not playing hard defensively or not doing the right thing offensively. I mean, I think that's got to be a worry. It's something that's never talked about. You get a top pick, and then, you know, you're going to have him. Bring good veterans around him. Bring good veterans around him. You hope so. I mean, the one young player that the Knicks have that actually has some promise is Tim Hardaway Jr. And 
Derek Fisher has put him firmly in his doghouse, trying to kind of yeah. break down his game, trying to make him play better defensively, try to trust the system, and it's not really working. Listen, the Knicks had an opportunity last year to either walk away from Carmelo Anthony or even better yet, how about trade him for some assets? Why not exactly. make a deal like the Celtics just did for Rajon Rondo? Get a couple first-round picks. You're not exactly. going anywhere. I know Nate Silver came out with his percentages. The Knicks have a 3% chance, according to him, of winning a title yep. in the next five years. I think, those, I think the right. Cavs only had a 7% chance, so I'm not sure how, how factual that was um, in right. the likelihood of that happening. But to me, the writing is on the wall that Carmelo Anthony is not the type of superstar you're going to win a championship with. And to give that much money to Don't a guy who doesn't play Don't defense. Yes, you do know that. He does not play defense. No, he's not a leader on the court. He's not all these things. He's a specialist. Joe. He is a scorer. But I am not going to build my team around a guy who has that many holes in, in his game. That is not who I'm putting my entire future on as an organization. So, if a guy can't so play back, defense and he can't lead by example and he can't lead vocally, all he is is a specialist scorer. You know what? I can find a couple other guys that can score 15 to 18 points a game and make up what Carmelo Anthony gives Joe, me when it comes to scoring. What I can't, what I can't Joe, find is, that, is a leader. 15, what I can't find is a real person that brings attitude and work ethic and actually looks like he gives a damn about winning a title and not about changing the world through his, through his you're, corporation. You're, you're, you're the same guy that back in 2007, after Dirk Nowitzki and, and the Mavs got knocked out in the first round by Golden State, would have said Dirk will never win a championship and look what happened. So, you know, just keep that in mind. The Mavericks won fifty something games every single year, Mike. That was a that was a fluke type. But, but of based thing on what for you just said, you just round. said they're not. It's about winning championships. And Dirk, up until twenty eleven, had not you're comparing won one. Dirk Nowitzki to Carmelo Anthony. Dirk is much better player than Carmelo Anthony. Wow. Much better player, better passer, more unselfish, without question. And granted. Are the Mavericks a better organization? Does Dirk have more talent around him? How about this, Mike? What did Dirk take this year? What was his contract this year? I know. He, he took, makes he less took, money than anybody else of, on that starting five. He's a Charlotte Parsons. Right. So that's a leader. That's a guy who cares about winning, not like selfish Carmelo Anthony, okay, who so took you, the most amount you of money. Take, you watch that documentary with Carmelo Anthony. It was clear that he wanted to win, that he would have gone to Chicago. He came to New York for all the other reasons. Not about winning. It's clear he's not about winning. And shockingly, the team is 522 with him yep. as their top bowler. Oh, good Lord. Well, you know what? We have, uh, let's, get, let's take a break. We've got John Wertheim next. We'll talk a little bit about the Al Michaels book. Joe is, uh, is gleefully rubbing his hands, and his Brooklyn Nets are better than the, the Knicks, and Carmelo is floundering. So uh, we'll see. It'll, it'll, it's, not, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, taking you all the way up till noon. Check us out at weekendwatchdogs.com for the show live and on replay. We'll be back with John Wertheim of SI right after this. The most magnificent. Mojo. Marvelous. Mojo. Magical. Mojo. Memorable minute of your morning. Oh, God, please. You guys don't have enough minutes on this show. The Mojo Minute. I mean, we're not yelling fire in a theater here. With Jim Mojo Morrison. Who the heck knows? This isn't an exact science. Only on the Weekend Watchdogs, Saturday, 10 to noon, on Blog Talk Radio. Bojo! It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono.
We're back. Weekend Watchdog, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. And uh, joining us is Sports Illustrated's executive editor and senior writer. Just came out with a new book that he uh, co-wrote with Al Michaels. You can't make this up. Miracles, memories, and the perfect marriage of sports and television. And uh, John, uh, start out. Uh, great book, by the way. And, uh, you know, great project and an interesting project. And give us a little idea how you got involved with Al Michaels and, and came to, you know, publishing this uh, this book? Um, you know, honestly, I'm not even sure I know. Uh, we were uh, been acquaintances for a while, and I enjoyed his work, and I think he reached a point where he said, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. I've got a lot of stories. Time to, uh, to write a book. He, had, I think, just read something I'd written in Sports Illustrated and called, called me up, and we met at, uh, met at a Super Bowl in Indianapolis, and talked about whether we thought we could make it work and decided to give it a shot. And obviously Al's had so many stories throughout the year, so many memorable moments he's been fortunate to be part of. Um, was there, at the end of the process, were there stories that you loved but just couldn't get into the book? How difficult was it to decide what stays and what what ultimately goes? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I had never done a book like this, but I had colleagues that had, and they had stories of, you know, they're working with athletes, and it was torture to try and get enough material to, uh, you know, fill 250 pages. It was like holy peace. This was the, this was the opposite. I mean, we could have done, uh, we could have done two books. Al just has a huge wealth of stories, and some of them were, were great stories. But we just sort of decided they didn't really fit into the structure. Um, others, I think, once he read them, they they told better than they read. But the, the one thing uh, that wasn't a problem was the material here. I mean, he's, he's lived a full life. He remembers details. He's a great storyteller. And, you know, we, we did not uh, – we didn't have a shortage of material. For whatever issues we had, that wasn't one of them. We have with us John Wertheim, uh, Sports Illustrated uh, executive editor. He's the co-author of the book, You Can't Make This Up, uh, about Al Michaels. Um, you know, one thing that amazed me about Al Michaels is – there's so many legendary broadcasters, but they normally, for lack of a better word, major in one sport. I think Vince Scully is the one that comes to mind. Al has, has done incredible things in all the four major sports, and even in uh, regular television. I mean, this is not easy to accomplish. I mean, t- talk about that, and, and how does, you know, it's just amazing to me, just from outside looking in, how he's been able to master, especially play-by-play in all the sports. Yeah, I, I think that's one thing that really makes him unique um you know we think that joe joe buck does golf and, and everybody sort of sits there with their mouth open in the case of al you know here's a guy who came up doing baseball and he worked for wild world of sports and his favorite sport is probably hockey his most famous call came in hockey yet he's probably most closely associated with football he's also done a ton of uh done a ton of horse racing. I mean, here's a guy who just, he loves sports, he loves competition, he loves being in that booth. And for him, you know, remember, this guy's doing play-by-play, too, so there's no there's no winging it. For him to have this kind of a track record in a variety of sports, I think is, is really, I mean, again, I, I use the word unique. And as, and as versatile as he is, um, you know, perhaps his finest moment was when he was forced to become a news reporter during the 1989 earthquake during the World Series in San Francisco. How does he view that experience and what he was able to do that night, um, kind of filling in Ted Koppel and working with ABC 
comparatively to what he's been able to do during a sporting event. Yeah, I'm not sure he saw it as, as a totally different exercise. I mean, I think he sees himself as a guy who's, who's reporting what he's seeing, and he wants to enhance the, uh, the experience for the viewer, but he's not going to speculate. He's going to talk about what he knows. And, you know, with that earthquake, he was with the Giants, San Francisco Giants, in the 70s and, and lived for many years in the Bay Area. So I, I think he's he, looking back, you know, he had a sense of the landmarks and the bridges, and he knew the area, and I think that really helped. But, you know, he went to the work that day thinking he was going to do a baseball game, ends up spending the next, you know, 14 hours talking about an earthquake. But I'm not sure in his mind it was such a difficult transition. John, we know about the miracle on ice. Obviously, you just mentioned the earthquake and, and there's, you know, O.J. Simpson and all that stuff. But is there one story that is maybe lesser known that uh, you found interesting, that stood out to you, that surprised you, maybe something that uh, we, you know, that Noah uh, Al Michaels from afar would, would not necessarily know about him? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think some, some of them are sort of bigger moments and some of them are just these smaller moments. I mean, he has a relationship with, Brett Favre and sort of talks to Brett before a game and suddenly learns that Brett's a grandfather. And just sort of little things like that where you see that this is a guy dedicated to his craft, who does his reporting. And, you know, I, mean, I think I think it's just it's remarkable. We still talk about Miracle on Ice. That was 35 years ago, and yet here we are at the end of 2014, and there's Al Michaels doing play-by-play on, you know, the most well-rated You can't make this up. Miracles, Memories, and the Perfect Marriage of Sports and Television is the book. Um, You know, John, you know, Al said that he's lived a charmed life. It's almost as if the moments follow him at times. Um, With that said, he's still as prepared as anyone in the profession. Um, What did you take away regarding his work ethic and how he prepares for a game? Um, Because from what I understand, he he prepares so much and yet uses sometimes so little of what he prepares during the week when he's doing the Sunday night broadcast. That's absolutely right. And keep in mind, I mean, these broadcasts, it's not as though he's just working for one team. I mean, it's it's two new teams virtually every, uh, every, every Sunday and, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's one of these jobs in sports media. We sit home, we watch a game. Like, how could the announcer not know that he went to Auburn instead of Alabama? I think it's one of these jobs that a lot of us, you sort of lapse into this this mode of, boy, I, I could do that. And you see the level of preparation and you see how complex it can be. And you just sort of see him treat this really as, as a job he wants to be perfect. And it comes away with a much different perspective of, uh, of TV media. And you know the thing that's interesting, he's a, he's a Los Angeles Kings fan, and it's different for someone in the media, especially at the level of an Al Michaels, to even show a little bit of fandom. Uh, is hockey his, his first love, his favorite sport? Is you know, Give us a little idea of, of Al Michaels, the, the sports fan that seems to come out when it, when it comes to the uh, Los Angeles Kings. Yeah, I think hockey is what reduces him back. You know, that's what takes him back to being an eight-year-old. He doesn't doesn't do much hockey. I mean, obviously he's known for the miracle on ice, but he hasn't done a whole lot of hockey. And I think that's one sport where he can just be an absolute homer. That's where one sport where he can just be a pure sports fan. He's a king season ticket holder. You know, had the Stanley Cup in his backyard a few years ago. And again, I mean, this is a guy doing basically doing the job he wanted to do when he was eight years old. And 
hockey is one sport where he doesn't have to worry about having a rooting interest or be perceived as, as biased or partial. Huge, uh, huge hockey fan. I think part of that is because that's not a sport that he works. John, how did the worldwide of sports impact him being able to work with such, you know, legends and Howard Cosell and Jim McKay and Keith Jackson and other people of the ABC family and kind of crisscrossing the country and, you know, you could be doing a bowling a bowling game match one day and then be doing, you know, something completely different the next. How did that kind of shape his career and maybe prepare him um, for what he was able to do um, later on in his career? Yeah, I, that's a really good point. I mean, on the one hand, he worked with these absolute titans. Remember, he's sort of in his in his early 30s when he starts there, and suddenly he's working with guys like like Jim McKay and Keith Jackson, Howard Cosell. And I think also exactly what you said. They, you said they hand out the assignments, and you didn't know if you were doing ski racing in the Alps or bowling in St. Louis or, you know, he did one, motorcycles on ice. And what that caused him to do was really be – versatile and, and sort of fast on his feet and do his research. And uh, I, I think that's a good point. And I think that wide world of sports, which obviously it doesn't exist today, and it's almost a laughable concept of a, you know, a one-hour sports show, two-hour sports show with all sorts of different segments. Um, it was really influential at the time, and I think that's, that's one of those shows that really, that really sort of set the, set the tone for what I would do later in his career. And the interesting part is he, he didn't hold back, it looks like. I mean, he talked about those in the business that he admires, like Chris Collinsworth and John Madden. Uh, he also talked about some relationships that weren't as positive, like Cosell, who you just mentioned, and Jack Kent Cook and, and Boomer Esaias, and uh, a little bit different. I mean, it sounds like he wanted to lay it out there and, and, and really give you a perspective of who he enjoyed working with and then obviously some of the challenges that come with being in the the position he is as a as a as a legendary broadcaster. Yeah, I, I think he sort of wrote this book the way he is in life, which is you know straight shooter, and he's not going to uh, he he's not he doesn't have an axe to grind. It wasn't one of these sort of settling old scores books. But on the other hand, he wasn't going to uh, you know he wasn't going to sugarcoat anything, and he enjoyed the vast majority of assignments and people he worked with, but the few people that he didn't. You you mentioned. You know, Boomer Esiason, Jack Kent Cook, uh, Ted Forty. There, some people that he didn't necessarily admire. And he uh, he tells it like it is, as someone said. And Al, at seventy years old, how is his enthusiasm for the job? How long do you think he will continue? In your conversations with him, did he offer any indication as to at what point he thinks he'd like to step away from the microphone? No, I, I think he's in this mode of uh, you know, it's it's, it's a great great gig it's a great life i still like what i do i'm still challenged by it i'm not jaded and i i think he's just sort of taking it as you know whenever the ride's up it's up but right now i still feel like uh there's no place i'd rather be in the broadcast booth at kickoff and until that changes you know why even think about retiring so, so what's coming up for you john obviously you're promoting this book uh, we know you work at sports illustrated you know give the listeners an idea of the book related events or, or something that you got going on as we head into the holidays that you want to talk about? Um, no, we're working on the, working on another book. I do Australia for tennis in a few weeks. Uh, trying to make Sports Illustrated as good as it can be. Um, have, a, have a kid's book out called Rookie Bookie. But uh, no, just, just trying to stay busy. Well, listen, we appreciate a few minutes of your time. Great book. 
Uh, have a great holiday. Um, good luck with the other projects, and uh, let's catch up again, all righty? You got it. Thanks. Thanks so much. John Wertheim, Sports Illustrated. Uh, I want to thank him for a few minutes of time. And, Joe, you mentioned in the the interview the worldwide of sports, and I went to the history of the worldwide of sports on Wikipedia. Amazing the media luminaries that were on there, including David Letterman, who you mentioned earlier. I didn't realize that David Letterman was one of the reporters on ABC's The Worldwide of Sports, which started in 1961, kind of pre-internet revolutionary type of a sports variety show. I think that's the right word to use for that. Yeah, HBO did a um, special on Jim McKay a number of years back. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it for anyone who's kind of interested in sports broadcasting and studios and how things kind of work. It was called In These Words, and it spends a lot of time about his career with Wide World of Sports. And it's something that probably wouldn't work today, like John Wertheim said. Um, but at the time, there was a tremendous amount of interest and intrigue about it, seeing live pictures from somewhere else all around the world. You know, and even though there would be some things that were as funny as, you know, wheelbarrow jumping, it brought you into the living room of these remote places that wherever you were in America, you probably would never, right. ever visit. And I think that was the, the world charm was of it. Big. it. The world was big back then. The world is very small because of technology now. The world was big back then. And it gave you, you know, something and, different and, to talk about. And as far as Al Michaels, you know, obviously most remember for the Do You Believe in Miracles, uh, Miracle on Ice team in 1980, you had Keith Jackson, Howard Cosell, Frank Gifford, Jim McKay, and they had never, ever called a hockey game, all four of them, despite all the experiences they had. And Al Michaels had done one. And that's that one game that he had done once upon a time was why he got the nod and kind of put him in that situation to, to call that game. But he goes back, and some of his earliest memories with his father was, was going to ice skating rinks and watching hockey and watching the New York Rangers. You know, he, his path, he, he grew up in Brooklyn, but actually spent a lot of his time in Hawaii. Uh, he, got, he kind of learned his craft in Hawaii as a broadcaster mm -hmm. and then made his way to Cincinnati and some other places working with teams before ultimately you know, jumping on the national stage like he is. But, you know, as we mentioned at the top of the show, when Al Michaels is doing your game, it feels feels like a big game. And he's very sharp, still at 70 years old. Look at him, Vince Scully, these guys in their 70s, and they're still just as good as ever. And it's great stuff. So it, let's let's transport you for a second. If you Let's pretend you're famous for a minute. If there is one pretend. show that you'd like to be a part of, let's pretend. We're not, we're not to the fame level to get you know, invited places. There's one show, sports and non-sports, that you'd like to be a part of. Maybe it's going on Letterman, Johnny Carson, the worldwide sports. There's a show you've always wanted to, like, not attend, but like be a part of, like back in, you know, going back in history. Would it be the wide world of sports? That history? seems like something. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I would have done that well. Uh, I like uh, I like the sports reporters. I think that's a cool gig on Sunday mornings. Um, I think just to be part of ESPN back in the 80s and early 90s would have been an absolute hoot. You know, here I re reading that book and and understanding that they were all part of something, but they never really understood how big it would be. If you could have had a career of like Bob Lee, for example, um, that was right. there at the very very beginning, you know, to to kind of see everything evolve. I mean, that would have been. That would have been absolutely let's, incredible. Let's face it, Joe. Getting into media, late 70s, early 80s, was the golden age because it was exploding. And if you got in the right situation, I'm not saying that all these guys aren't talented. They all have a certain level of talent. But it has made them a lot of money and longevity that is not necessarily feasible today. 
because there's so much saturation. Let's put it that way. A lot harder for someone to do what Mike Francesa, let's say, has done or Bob Lee today. Well, I mean, in a couple of ways, there's more, there's more opportunities now for people. Like, if you have a real desire to get your content out there, and this show is an example of that, you can create yep. your own. You could create your own platform, and uh, through a grassroots type of campaign, and just keep on trying to build momentum. But it is harder, uh, I think, to kind of then separate yourself from all of that content that's out there to be something unique and different that says I deserve the shot at the national level compared to somebody else. Um, but listen, right. we still see examples of guys like, you know, we had Steve Gelbs on before. You know, Kevin Burkhart was, you know, working for uh, used cars, 1010 yeah. wins and, and then selling Prime cars. Chevrolet. Uh, I think it was Prime right, Belt Chevrolet. Uh, debating whether or not his next life move was going to be. Uh, gets an opportunity at SNY, does it so, so well, right. becomes versatile, and now he's got a great gig with Fox Sports. He's doing, he's going to be doing basketball. He's doing football, college football, professional football. You know, you watch the All-Star game. He's hosting the studio show. So there are still some great stories out there. But the thing about sports and sports broadcasting is that when you have these legends like Dick Enberg and Al Michaels and Vince Scully, these guys don't leave the jobs. You know, Gary Cohen's going to be doing the Met games until he doesn't want to do the Met games anymore. So right. if your dreams to get job by announcer of the New York Mets, Harry Rose and right. Gary Cohen probably probably have those gigs for a long, long time. You know, this is going to sound weird, but and, and it, it's not a show that's on anymore, and nor would I be famous enough now to be invited. But if I ever had some level of fame, I'd want to be on the Muppet Show. You know, like how they had the one regular person that would like the one guest, them. yeah, the one, yeah, the one, yeah, the one okay. guest, not Sesame Street. Like that was <laughs> no, no. I think the Muppet Show was fun. You want to be fun. prime That's time. Was yeah, prime time. Yeah, Muppet Show was fun. Like, it wasn't as serious. Like, I don't, Muppet Show was necessarily, wasn't about learning. It was more about just having fun. I, I, really don't want, I really don't care about my ABCs, to tell you the truth. And I would be kind of freaked <laughs> out where it would be me, those, that, those neighbors like Gordon and Mr. Hooper. Like, I'd have to be serious and like, actually take it seriously and actually have to teach a lesson to the young youth of America. I couldn't, I had to cover up my tattoos. You know, I couldn't make a wise joke. So I feel on the Muppet show, I'd be able to be more myself than Sesame Street. So for the record, anyway, well, well, but I know we got to get to well, Mojo if, in the pit. If you, ever, if you ever do get on a primetime show, will you, will you wear the S shirt, please? <laughs> yeah. So I can make you more money while I have to pay $27 for it. <laughs> if you wear the, uh, the Yankee bump shirt, the Bronx, our buddy Frank Grimes on Twitter thinks we should call it the Bronx bump so that we don't get uh, sued. Hey, uh, any, any thoughts on your experience uh, covering Mariota and the, uh, the Heisman? Uh, no, I mean, nice guy. I mean, I only get like a few minutes of interaction with him. Obviously he does such a great job at the Heisman presentation in terms of his acceptance speech, but when he came back with the media, it was still very cordial, very humble. Obviously, his Polynesian descent made, made, meant a whole, whole lot to him, and I uh, was able to get him on for Fox Sports Radio afterwards. Uh, nice guy, and got his coach on, uh, Coach Helflick, um, later on in the show as well, which was which was a nice uh, get for me. Both guys are uh, very happy, very cordial, and getting ready for a huge game against Florida State. I think the fact that these two quarterbacks are going to get debated for so, so long leading up to the draft, the fact that they're going to be playing against each other on January 1st is great. I think that's a must-see college football game. Even if you don't follow college football throughout the year, that semifinal game is a game you need to watch. Because if you're an NFL fan more so, you're going to be watching two guys that are going to be starting in the NFL real, real soon. Peter King, I don't know if you saw it, did a Monday morning quarterback piece on Mariota uh, after, the, uh, after the Heisman win. 
And here's a quote, and if you want to know a damning quote if you're a local Jets fan, Mariota's such a reticent kid about the fame that the best thing that happened to him over the weekend might have not been the Heisman. It might have been the Jets' third win. <laughs> and people were mad at Geno Smith for leading the Jets down the field to a yeah. win. Ugly, the one I mean, thing, another ugly the, game. The one thing that did take me by surprise is that he opened up in the press conference afterwards talking about how much he hated and was afraid of public speaking. And I was like, ooh, you're going to be dealing with the That's New York media. Be you better learn how to speak in front of a bunch of people. So maybe he is better right. off somewhere else. You know, and if you go to the Monday morning quarterback, a couple of quick things. And I know Mojo's not a huge Mariota fan, but Tony Dungy loves him, thinks he could be a pocket passer. And other uh, industry experts feel that to compare him to RG3, that he's a better version of RG3 and he has more of an ability uh, to, to learn how to be a pocket passer. And I think Tampa Bay, it sounds like, is a good spot for him. Got Mike Evans, you got the tight end over there. So I don't know. I mean... It is. I mean, the thing. Look, the thing that well, we can't talk about it today. We don't have time. If the Jets and it looks like the Jets are going to be outside of that Jameis Winston Mariota range, unless there's a trade, they might have to trade that first round pick and do something else. Well, the mock drafts right now have them grabbing Amari Cooper, top wide receiver in the draft, and all of a sudden, if the Jets did that, I mean, I know you still got to bring in a quarterback, but if Cooper, Harvin, and Decker are your top three wide receivers, look about where they were last year. Ooh, that's that's a major have, jump up. You still have Geno Smith throwing to them. Still have Geno I Smith think we all know it won't be Geno Smith throwing. I don't know who it's going to be, but whomever it is is going Jake to benefit Cutler. from a better receiving core than ever. Uh, Geno Smith or bring in, bring in Jake Cutler. I mean, those are three bring in Jake Cutler really Cutler good. Bring in Jake Cutler. Yeah, those would be three Maybe Jake really Cutler good wide receivers there. if that. Jake Cutler could be Jake, like a someone, free well. There was someone on Twitter yesterday talking about Jake Cutler ending up in Tennessee. That, like, the reason why he's sitting out these games is that they're going to trade him to Wisenhunt in Tennessee. He went to Vanderbilt. That's kind of where he, he went to college. Mm -hmm. And uh, that'll go that route for a quarterback and then draft someone else at the top of the draft. Hey, one last quick thing before we get to Mojo. So the BaseballThinkFactory.org collects Hall of Fame ballots from the writers that publish it. I know we're not doing the Hall of Fame until after the holidays. But... Um, with 5.3% of the voters revealed, as of 11.50 a.m., I guess this is yesterday, Pedro Martinez, 100%, Randy Johnson, 96.7, John Smoltz, 86.7, Biggio, 86.7, Piazza, 83.3, Bagwell, 76.7. So it's one, two, three, four, five. If that holds up, you're going to have six candidates elected in the whole thing. It won't. I think Bagwell will fall short, and I'm a little worried about Piazza. But I think you're going to get five people elected. Looking good. I think Piazza's got a good shot. I think you'll definitely get three. You'll definitely get two, maybe three. Yeah. I think you got a chance. And who's Randy? And who's not voting for Randy Johnson? I mean, oh my God. He, uh, I, he's going to get me all so, upset again this year. I mean, it, it, we'll get into that. Well, that's our our first show in 2015. But uh, anyway, uh, joining us, and I think we lost his music, Joe. I think we have for somehow we deleted his music. We have his promo. I can't find his music on the board, so we'll just have to. I'll, I'll give him something else. That. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'll give him something gotta... uh, more dramatic. Ready? The new, the new intro just for today. All right. That is pretty dramatic. That's very pretty good, huh? Joke. Yeah, I heard he took his sleigh all the way up from, well, down from North Carolina. And he led his way all the way here to New York, and he is in the tri-state area. And he will be in the building at the Nassau Coliseum tonight. It's Jim Mojo Morrison. Mojo, how are you? 
I'm doing great. Looking forward to the uh, game with you guys tonight. You know, Joe, my first Islander game I saw, I was, I was re- looking through some old stuff here. I, I got back for the holiday. I saw the Islanders, my first game. My dad dragged me out there in 1978 to see the Cleveland Barons play the New York Islanders. Wow. And they wow. later became the North Stars. No, uh, it's, I was like just really young, but I, and I was a Ranger fan, and my father wanted to convert me to an Islander fan, but it didn't work. But uh, I was just thinking about my first. It was a Saturday night. I got dragged all the way well, out the there night, to Union Deal. Tonight's my next chance. And, and just like that, you're getting dragged out to Uniondale one more time. Tonight, you become uh, you convert to the New York Islanders. So, Joe, before we get going on our picks, I just want to just set your narrative straight on Carmelo. 2004 to 2010 led the Nuggets, a perennial basement team, to the playoffs every year. Two division titles with a point guard. And we always misinterpret guys in the, in the NBA. The point guard is very crucial. Chauncey Billups, 09, Carmelo, they get him to the Western Conference Finals. He's been in New York three and a half years. The Knicks have been in the playoffs three out of those four times, including their first playoff series victory in 13 years. Two-time Olympic gold medalist, an NCAA championship as a freshman where he took a team. He's a seven-time All-Star, six-time All-NBA. I really have a hard time figuring out how that makes a guy a loser. I never said a loser, just not the right guy at this time to build your team around. I'm not saying he can't win a championship in the right situation, but the Knicks are not in the right situation and are not going to be in the right situation. So just pay him all this money where you might have just two years where he actually can be on a competitive team, to me, did not make sense. And it still doesn't make sense. That's what it's about. So it's, it's about, I mean, uh, take Durant and LeBron off the table. Who in the NBA would you put on your team ahead of him? Who is, who is better than him? Than, uh, take Durant and, and, and LeBron. I mean, I think that's the problem with Carmelo Anthony, is he's not take LeBron. Damian Lillard. I'd rather have Damian Lillard right now. I'd rather have Stephen Curry right now. I'd probably, probably have uh, a bunch of other players well, right now ahead of him. Based if, on if where Curry, he is in his career. The Knicks but, were going to draft Curry. That would have been interesting. Change the course of history. Tony might have kept his job. But remember, Curry had ankle issues his first couple of years. He might have gotten traded from the Knicks. So there's no, you know, you just don't. Again, this is not anti Carmelo Anthony as a player, but he is what he is, and he's a specialist type player. And the fact that you were going to have, like, you would need to build the perfect team around him for him to actually be successful. And I don't think that's the case for all other players. Well, well, and to well, give him all that money to me. When, they put, when Jason Kidd went back to Dallas, that's when Dirk got over the hump with the, with the point guard. Got I mean, over the hump. Got over the hump. So over the hump for uh, Carmelo Anthony is what? Winning one playoff series against an old Celtics but he took, team? I he mean, took a perennial basement team, the Nuggets, to the playoffs seven years in a row. I mean, he won knocked 50 out games. the first, Four, first round every year but one. But, but 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 he was playing in the West. I'm, all right, well, I'm not going off the time. I'm just saying. But the guy, the narrative hey, against hey, Carmelo. Mojo. Listen, we, hey, we I mean, go over the Mojo. We, we're going to debate Carmelo Anthony forever and ever. I don't think that it's not that I don't think he's a great player or a great scorer. I should say I don't think where the Knicks are and what they can do over the next several years. It made sense to give him the keys to the truck when you still have to do all this other work and there's a likelihood that you will not be able to. Because if you don't bring in Kevin Durant, if you don't bring in Anthony Davis, now you are paying this guy for five years, over $100 million, and you're never going to get to bottom out the way you need to to actually build a true winner. That's how I think. Hey, Mojo, if, yeah. if Joe is gonna, wants to be on ESPN and I want to be on The Muppet Show, which show would you like to be on That's if, if you could pick any show in, in history? 
That's a good one. I like oh. the, Mu- the Muppet Show is actually a, a good one. I, I actually always <laughs> I, 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 enjoy, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of go along with Joe. I, I always I love college game day, being able to travel around to college campuses and be able to just hang out, on, you know, and then do shows every Saturday and, you know, do college sports. I mean, I thought that that's like the ultimate job. Hang with out with the frat. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's just like a great that was a great gig. All right. Well, it's been a great gig for Mojo doing picks. He's 25 and 20. We had a little controversy that we solved on, on text message last night. Mojo's 25 and 20. Joe with the big comeback. 22, big comeback. 22 and 1. Big comeback. So we, we still have a chance for there to be a, a, some kind of upset of Mojo. And I'm 20, 24 and 1. Bring up the rear. It looks like I'm done. Uh, I'll start it off this week. Um, and I'm going to start off with my love. And I'm going to keep going to the well here, and I, I, I'm going to probably get burnt. But I'm going to go with the New Orleans Saints, a six and a half point favorite at home over the the Falcons. Uh, they're six and eight. They need to win out to make the playoffs, finish eight and eight, and, and win that future division. Um, they've already lost way too many games at home this year. The Saints. I don't see them losing to the Falcons at home. And after that uh, performance by Drew Brees against Chicago, maybe Drew Brees is finally getting into it. So I'm going to pick the New Orleans Saints six-and-a-half-point favorite. I like the uh, Eagles, Washington. I know they're a seven-and-a-half-point favorite. Washington is just in disarray. Uh, there's always a new controversy about the coach in RG3. Um, who knows what the – you know, I know they played the Giants somewhat tough for half, but I could see Philly. Philly's serious. they got to win. They can't lose this game. Uh, the Pulsey tight. So I'm going to take uh, Mark Sanchez and the Eagles. Seven and a half point favorites over the Redskins. And then finally, my luck, and this is probably, I think, the first time I picked them. I'm going to go with the Jets. The Jets are a ten and a half point uh, underdog to the Patriots. Uh, Rex's final stand at the uh, MetLife, the Meadowlands, whatever you want to call it. They're going to go all out for the coach that everybody loves. You know, the affable, lovable Rex Ryan. They're going to lose. I think if you give them ten and a half, they should be able to keep it close with New England. I'll probably regret this about 30 minutes into tomorrow's game, but... My luck is the New York Jets. And on to the surging Joe Bonin. All right, 22-22-1. After all these weeks, I'm back where we started, right at 500. My love pick is the Baltimore Ravens giving up five points at the Houston Texans. Texans are starting Case Keenum, who is a member of the St. Louis Rams as of Monday. Obviously, he played for the team last year, but not in Bill O'Brien's system. But just to show you how dire their state is, they lost Ryan Mallett, lost Ryan Fitzpatrick, lost Tom Savage last week. So this is their fourth-string quarterback that was on another team last week. Baltimore needs every single game in order to win the AFC North. I think their defense is rounding into shape and should have a field day against Case Keenum. Only hope for the Texans is if Aaron Foster has a huge day. I think I'll have a nice day, but not nearly big enough. I love the Ravens, minus five. I like the Denver Broncos, minus three at Cincinnati. Listen, I know people are feeling that the Broncos offense, especially Peyton Manning, has not been as good as he's normally been the last few weeks. Obviously, C.J. Anderson has been great on the ground. But look at the Cincinnati Bengals. They needed to squeak by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last week. This team, although they're in first place, I'm not going to bet on them finishing out winning the AFC North. I think they lose this game. I think Denver plays real, real well on Monday night. I like the Broncos and Peyton Manning, minus three in Cincinnati. And then my luck pick, I've gone to them the last two weeks. I'm going to go to them again. The Minnesota Vikings getting six and a half at Miami. For me, this is psychological. And the Dolphins had an opportunity to have a good season, make a playoff push. 
those hopes are now gone. Now they're just playing out the string against the next two weeks. Joe Philman doesn't know if he's going to have a job. The Vikings are a team that's played hard all year long and have played tight in games. Last week against the Lions, they almost pulled that out. So my luck pick is the Minnesota Vikings getting six and a half. Mojo. All right, I'm going to go luck. I'm going to get to two games. I'm going to go with two of the games today and then uh, one tomorrow. But I'm going to go with the Redskins uh, today, getting the seven and a half. I like the division game at home. Uh, I think RG3, I'm not a big fan of him, but I think he tries to make a, uh, a statement of some sort today. Uh, and as long as they don't turn the ball over and get destroyed on special teams, I think the Redskins in a divisional game uh, at home today on TV is going to make it close and stay within the touchdown against the Eagles. I mean, they played very well against the Giants, uh, had some uh, misfortune last week. So I'm going to take the Skins today. My light pick is a kind of a, another uh, situation where a team that is really not that good, but I think is going to stay within the number. I'm going to take the Raiders getting the seven and a half tomorrow uh, against the Bills. Bills, who I had as a love last week, beat the Packers. I think. In a letdown spot, traveling across the country. Raiders have played very well at home this year. Uh, I think Buffalo beats them, but I think it's going to be closer than the 7.5, so I'll take the Raiders. And then my uh, love pick, which I've done pretty well this year, um, I believe it's 11-4 uh, overall. I'm going to go with the 49ers uh, tonight to beat the Chargers. I think it's down to a point and a half uh, at this point. Uh, all the controversy with Harbos, he's staying, he's going. Uh, they were eliminated, uh, you know, from playoff contention with the loss last week. I think the Chargers are in, are in disarray. They need the game. I just think the 49ers are going to take pride in uh, knocking the Chargers out. Uh, Harbaugh is going to try to circle the wagons tonight and make this a, a somewhat of a meaningful game for the Niners. So I'm going to take the 49ers tonight uh, to beat the right. uh, San Francisco, uh, the right. San Diego Chargers. Great stuff, and we will see you at the Nassau Coliseum, Mojo. And, Joe, we're out of time. We can't even debate the whole Carmelo Anthony thing now, so we can do another thirty minutes oh, well, on we'll Carmelo. See each other. We'll be doing it. We'll be doing it. At, we'll be doing it later this uh, evening. I'm sure at the NASA Coliseum in All between intermissions, right. debating Carmelo. Section three nineteen, row P. If you guys want to come, say hello. Just say hello to Joe. Stay away from me. That's what section? Three eighteen. Three eighteen. Right. Three eighteen. I'm sorry. Three eighteen, row P. Yeah. Just you know, keep the keep the masses those away are, from me. Those are, a barrage. Now, now, just to let you know, Mike. It was 35 on stuff up. They're going to say 15, like 60 on the on the price. So I'm not trying to get more money out of you. That's what I had to lay out on stuff up. Okay. Hey, I want to thank Steve Gelbs of SNY, John Wertheim of, S- of uh, Sports Illustrated. Uh, of course, I want to thank all the listeners, all the callers. Uh, check us out at WeekendWatchdogs.com for the show live on a replay, and of course at Mike Silva Media on Twitter at JBono611. Guys, have a great Saturday. See you next week.